0: Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 53. And welcome to wartime. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying
1: attention. So you're talking about 2.2 million deaths, 2.2 million people from this. And so if we could hold that down, as we're saying, to 100,000, it's a horrible number maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between 100,000 and 200,000. We all together have done a very good job.
0: A very good job? A very good job. He thinks if 100,000 Americans die, he's done a very good job. We may be a bit closer now, a bit closer, to finding a vaccine for the coronavirus. But there is still no vaccine for stupid. And that stupid is intense. It's hard to kill. It's very contagious. And it continues to spread. It started inside the White House, spread to Fox News, on to certain members of Congress, and now to governors nationwide. And most notably, infecting the small brain of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. This was
2: him last week. Some people said, well, you know, we just see New York, they've issued uh, a shelter in place for the entire state. You know, shouldn't Florida do that? Um, and I think given our circumstances, that, that would not be advisable. Um, it would be a very blunt instrument. Uh, when you're ordering people to shelter in place, you are consigning a number, probably hundreds of thousands of Floridians to lose their jobs. Um, you're throwing their lives into a potential disarray. And if that were something that were necessary statewide because the health comes first, you know, that would be one thing. But if you look at Florida's situation right now, this is not a virus that's impacting every corner of the state. We have 20 counties that have zero cases at all. And we have about 25 counties that really have only a few cases. Some have two, some have five, some have seven. Uh, You do have an outbreak in Miami-Dade and Broward counties, uh, but those are different from places like northwest Florida. For weeks,
0: Governor DeSantis has refused to issue a stay-at-home order for Florida. Despite the spring break madness we all saw, despite the fact that they hosted the Super Bowl in February, despite the fact that Florida has the fifth highest number of reported cases in America— DeSantis has been endangering millions in Florida and nationwide. He's the Bill de Blasio of Florida, but dumber. And now he's finally reversed himself.
2: Given the the, the unique situation in Florida, um, I'm going to be doing an executive order today uh, directing all Floridians to limit movements and personal interactions outside the home to only those necessary to obtain or provide essential services or conduct essential activities.
0: In the last few episodes, I found a new theme song for Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who blocked the coronavirus bailout bill only to test positive for coronavirus. The same guy who voted against the 9-11 first responders' health care bill. But there's someone else who needs that theme song this week other than Senator Rand Paul. And it's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who still, despite a population with tens of millions of people at risk, refused to tell his people to stay at home. And so, for this pod, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis gets to borrow Senator Rand Paul's theme song. I DeSantis is an asshole of the highest magnitude. Now, he's finally listening to the doctors. So many doctors. But it may be too late already for thousands of Floridians. And especially for the hundreds of thousands of older people in Florida nursing homes and assisted living facilities. But Florida finally is locked down. And welcome to Operation Stay-At-Home America. 86% of America's population, or about 280 million people, are under some form of lockdown right now. Five-sixths of America is staying home right now, and one-sixth of America has leadership that's trying to kill the rest of us. 295 million people in at least 37 states, 74 counties, 14 cities, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico are being urged to stay home. Maine, Mississippi, Georgia finally got with the program and are shutting down now, too. However, at least four states in one territory Alabama, Nevada, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, and Guam have ordered non essential businesses to close but haven't asked all residents to stay home. So, to those governors, those mayors, you're putting your people at risk. You're putting all of us at risk. The Russians are celebrating, our enemies are celebrating. Not locking down is doing the work of ISIS for them. They could have never dreamed of killing over 100,000 Americans. And they don't have to. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and these others are doing the work of our enemies for them. Stop playing politics with people's lives. It's about public health, it's about national security, it's about common fucking sense. So please, shut it down. Don't win! I like Florida. I was supposed to go on vacation there last month. My in laws and countless other friends and family live there. I like Montana. I like parts of Alabama. But don't perpetuate the stereotype that Southerners are stupid. You can't pray the virus away. And Chick fil A ain't going to stop COVID 19. Shit, even Waffle House is shut down now. Yes, Waffle House is shut down. And that never happens. The 24 hour diner chain that was born in the Atlanta suburbs 65 years ago has spread like a scattered, smothered, and covered coronavirus over the last few decades. Waffle House is now in 25 states with nearly 2,000 locations. It's kind of like McDonald's in some communities, or the Greek Diner for the South, known for being a touchstone in every community it serves. It feeds like a cult following among foodies, road warriors, drunks, stoners, but it's also known for another remarkable distinction. It closes for no disaster. Except this one. Even Waffle House can't beat the virus. And there's a hashtag, Waffle House Index Red. The reference is to the Waffle House Index, an informal metric created by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to measure the effect of a natural disaster on a community. The green index means full menu service. Yellow means services have been limited. And red indicates closures, a major disaster. A whole bunch of Waffle House's hit red during the novel coronavirus. The closed doors among highways nationwide tell you everything you need to know about the state of things in America. So, Waffle House Index is red. 418 Waffle House restaurants are completely closed. 1,574 are open and have been doing carryout, which I can't imagine is the same. I kind of love Waffle House. But even Waffle House is shut down. So, to Governor to Stupid, shut it down, follow the science, and listen to the doctors. More than ever in our lives, we should all listen to the doctors and celebrate the doctors. Over the last few episodes since the virus hit, we've been talking to leaders who can help you through it. Navy SEAL and leadership and chaos expert Chris Fussell, Army Colonel Miles Caggins, spokesman for Operation Inherent Resolve in Baghdad, Iraq. He talked about what the military was facing and what they could do to help. And last episode, Medal of Honor recipient Captain Flo Groberg broke down how we can all overcome our fear, deal with isolation, face down depression, and support the frontline fighters. And in this episode, we're going to talk with one of those frontline fighters, a man who is right now, right now, on the front lines, fighting the virus and saving lives. He's literally the tip of the spear. Dr. Paul Hazer is a frontline warrior in the global war against the virus. As the war expands around the world and across America, New York City could be this war's Battle of the Bulge, the defining battle of the war. And instead of the Ardennes, the battlefield is Brooklyn and Queens the two hardest-hit places in America right now, maybe in the world. And now, instead of soldiers from the 101st Airborne and Patton's 3rd Army, our heroic fighters are doctors, nurses, and EMTs, surrounded by the enemy, greatly outnumbered, facing terrible conditions and a shocking lack of resources. Yet despite the odds, just like our greatest generation in the frozen forests of Europe 76 years ago, Our heroic American heroes are answering the call. In this war, the helpers are the heroes. And the doctors are our generals, our snipers, our Navy SEALs. They're taking out the enemy, they're leading the fight, and they're saving as many as they can. Doctors who represent the best of what the American fighting spirit is really all about. Doctors like Paul Hazer. Paul Hazer is a brilliant general and vascular surgeon at Brookdale Hospital Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Brookdale is the front line in our global war against the virus, and many in the media this week described it as a war zone. Here's a piece from CNN.
3: Every corridor, every corner, every ward. Bring the juice. Bring the juice. Every inch of Brookdale Hospital Medical Center in Brooklyn now inundated with those suffering from COVID-19. What are you looking at on a daily basis? How difficult is this?
4: Well, this is a war zone. It's a medical war zone. Every day I come in, what I see on a daily basis is pain, despair, suffering, and healthcare disparities.
3: Through Sunday afternoon, Brookdale said it had at least 100 confirmed cases of COVID-19 with nearly 80 awaiting confirmation. More than 20 people have died so far from the disease. On top of its normal emergency flow, coronavirus is pushing the hospital to the max.
4: We are scared too. We're fighting for your lives and we're fighting for our own lives. We're trying to keep our head above water and not drown.
3: Doctors, nurses, even those keeping the floors clean face a rising tide. Uncertain how long it will rise. Unsure this coronavirus won't sicken them as they struggle to stay a step ahead.
4: What do you need right now? We need prayer. We need support. We need gowns, we need gloves, we need masks, we need more vents, we need more medical space. We need psychosocial support as well. It's not easy coming here when you know that what you're getting ready to face.
3: The deaths here keep coming. While filming, another victim of COVID-19 was moved to the hospital's temporary morgue, a refrigerated semi-trailer parked out back. The hospital's regular morgue
0: filled to capacity. Brookdale Hospital is the front line not just for Brooklyn, but for America and for the world. Dr. Paul Hazer is a warrior on that front line, and he'll take us inside. He'll show you what the face of the enemy looks like. He'll tell you what it's like to operate on someone who's tested positive for COVID-19. He'll tell you what you can do to protect yourself and your family. And he'll tell you what you can do to support heroes like him and all the incredible medical professionals risking their lives for all of us right now. When I say look for the helpers, there's no finer helper than Dr. Paul Hazer, and none that's more contagious. Right now, he's risking his life. He's leaving his wife and kids to go into the mouth of danger for all of us. And coming up, you'll hear what's really happening in a hospital in New York City and will likely soon be happening in your city or town. You'll hear why he's angry and why you should be angry too. And he'll share his favorite drink, his first car. And what he does to keep himself physically and mentally healthy in the face of such a daunting threat. It might be the best, most useful, most honest, most infuriating, most inspiring story you've heard on this show so far. Paul will help us all adapt, improvise, and overcome. and he'll give you ammunition for the fight against the coronavirus. He brings the light, not heat. And just like the rest of us, in New York, in Detroit, in New Orleans, in Montana, in Florida, in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and all across the entire globe, wherever you are, Paul, you, me, we're all riders on the storm now. And as we ride on that storm, This conversation with Dr. Paul Hazer will give you information you can use to keep yourself, your loved ones, your neighbors, and your country safe. We're not just angry, we're active. So coming up, I'll also have an impactful action that you can take to help helpers like Paul responding to the coronavirus here outside my windows in New York City right now. I've also got an update from our friend Rob Sarah about how many of those frontline workers need your help again here in New York. And I've got some very special thank yous and some ways to keep your spirits up. But first, as in every show, there's news and issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And leading us off in our new normal, and until further notice, is of course our war, our war against the coronavirus. The virus's death toll in the U.S. hit more than 3,100 on March 30th, exceeding the 2,977 victims who were killed in the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the four hijacked planes on 9-11. So we've now surpassed the number of victims lost on 9-11 to the coronavirus in just about a month. And as of April 1st, 4,762 of our fellow Americans are dead. When I dropped the last episode of this podcast seven days ago, on March 26th, the number was 1,195. The next day, it was 1,588. The next day, 2,043. The next day, 2,419. The next day, 3,004. The next day, 3,835. And now, 4,762. So we've gone from 1,100 to almost 4,800 in seven days. We are now truly at war against the virus from continent to continent, from Italy to Japan, worldwide. And we're taking casualties big time, especially here in New York City. And Governor Andrew Cuomo right now is America's General Chamberlain, and he's laying it out.
5: In this war, we must plan forward for the next battle, meaning we have been behind from day one. This virus has been ahead of us from day one. You don't win a war that way. The next battle is the apex. The next battle is on the top of the mountain. See that curve? You see a curve? I see a mountain. The next battle will happen at the top of that mountain. That's where it is going to be joined. And that's where the enemy either overwhelms our health care system or we are able to handle the onslaught of the enemy.
0: And the battlefields are expanding nationwide. And We've taken a terrible loss in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Thirteen veterans are dead in one place in Holyoke, Massachusetts. I went to school just up the street from that soldier's home. I know it. I used to pass it on my way to college every single time. Thirteen veterans at the soldier's home in Holyoke died over the past week, and at least six of them were killed by coronavirus. And now it looks like over a dozen veterans and staff members at the state-run healthcare facility have tested positive for the virus, while dozens of other veterans have test results pending. And it appears there was a coverup. Nobody notified the state or the city for days. An important distinction, this is not a federally run Department of Veterans facility, but nevertheless, it was a nursing home for veterans and something I've been telling you to watch out for. 13 veterans are dead in one place and it could be just the beginning because the war is expanding fast. IRR call-ups have begun. President Trump authorized the Department of Defense to bring reservists and some former troops on active duty for the COVID-19 response. The IRR is the Individual Ready Reserve, and people are going to start getting calls. There it is, and it could just be the beginning. Millions of veterans will be checking their IRR status and explaining over dinner tables for the next few days. So watch this space. The war against the virus is expanding fast. We're pulling more and more reinforcements, and it's taken the first life in our military. A New Jersey Army National Guardsman who had tested positive for the coronavirus and been hospitalized since March 21st has died. Army Captain Douglas Lynn Hickok, a physician's assistant, served in the U.S. Army Medical Command. The death marks the first service member to have died from the coronavirus. He was a third-generation service member. Captain Hickok was 57, and he served in the National Guard Medical Unit based out of Seagirt, New Jersey. He was born in Oklahoma, raised in California, and Douglas Hickok lived in many states throughout his life. He was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was an Eagle Scout, and he served a two-year mission in Spain and spoke fluent Spanish. He was an avid baseball fan and a college athlete as a catcher in his 20s for the United States International University in San Diego, and Hickok first pursued a baseball career. He was even scouted to play for the Dodgers. When that didn't pan out, he instead turned his attention to sports medicine as a full-time career, and graduated from Cornell Medical School with a physician's assistant medical degree specializing in orthopedic surgery. Captain Hickok is an example of the frontline warriors in this new war. He was a healthcare professional who was heroically serving the fight and serving us all. There are over 1,000 cases of the coronavirus within the broad Defense Department community, and of those cases, 633 are service members who have contracted the virus. Other folks in uniform are getting hit hard too, and for many it feels like 9-11 all over again, especially here in New York. So I reached out to our friend Rob Sarah to get the inside scoop. He's a 9-11 first responder, served in the FDNY, and his first day on the job was 9-11. So if you're new here and you don't know him well, go back and check out episodes 2 and episodes 11 especially. But Rob gave us exactly what's happening for our firefighters, EMTs, and other first responders here in New York City and across the tri-state area. Here's Rob.
6: I spoke to a few active friends in the fire department today. Um, I was a bit disappointed to hear that firehouses are running low on masks uh, still um, and rubbing alcohol, which they use to, to decon their regulators, uh, which are shared. Um, there's only one per riding position each day, so you have to share a mask with the guy who worked the day before. Um, so they need to clean that, their tools, their equipment, the firehouse and all that stuff. So they, they're in desperate need of some rubbing alcohol. Essentially, uh, you know, as far as the masks go, each member is getting one mask a tour. I mean, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, um, but, they, you know, they, they're holding on to them pretty tight. And uh, when when the members need another mask, if they use one on a run or something, they got to go to the battalion and replace it. Um, on the EMS side of things, from what I've heard, uh, the, the members are feeling overworked and underappreciated by the bosses. Uh, as of now, they remain on eight hour shifts, five days a week. However, uh, the shifts are never really eight hours. You know, you can't just leave when your shift is over. Um, So they're usually close to 16 hours uh, a day, five days a week, um, which is is leaving the members tired. You know, a lot of them uh, are sleeping in their cars because they're afraid to bring the virus home to their families. um, And they feel like they're not getting enough sleep uh, to help their immune system uh, build up and uh, help them fight off the virus. Um, You know, they they did lobby with with brass to switch to a 12-hour schedule. Um, but they were denied. And at the same time they were denied, uh, the chiefs put themselves on a 12 hour work schedule. So I think that has many of them uh, pretty riled up. Um, as it stands, uh, as far as testing goes, they have to go to the test sites on their own if they want to get tested. Um, and, and, and from what I'm hearing, a lot of people don't feel like they have the time to do that. Um, as as far as the fire side goes, uh, they're, they're low on mass also. Um, eye protection supplies uh, remain low, uh, you know, and this is all happening as they continue to break records uh, daily with the number of calls. You know, it's it's about 7000 a day, um, even for the biggest fire department in the country. That's a lot. Uh, and all the all the guys I spoke to uh, seem to have the same type of feeling, you know, that like they did uh, following nine eleven, and and constantly being told that the air was safe to breathe. Um, you know, I find it disheartening to hear that firefighters are out there looking for mass on their own uh, and, they're, and they're trying to negotiate their own deals, um, you know, just to keep uh, themselves and the EMTs protected. Um, you know, that's that, that's also disheartening. You know, they shouldn't have to do that, um, especially in light of what we went through over the last 18 years uh, following 9-11. Um, so that's it. Thanks, bud. Yep, that's it. Rob is still isolating in
0: his basement in Staten Island right now. But he's continuing to fight for his brothers and sisters who are on the front lines. And many of them are at higher risk for COVID-19 because they have respiratory issues that were suffered as a result of their 9-11 service. So he's continuing to fight for his brothers and sisters who are on the front lines right now. And they shouldn't have to deal with this kind of crap. And they shouldn't have to deal with it again. They also shouldn't have to deal with hearing this from their commander-in-chief.
1: That statement was made that they've been delivering for years 10 to 20,000 masks. Okay, it's a New York hospital, very, it's packed all the time. How do you go from 10 to 20 to 300,000, 10 to 20,000 masks to 300,000, even though this is different? Something's going on. And you ought to look into it as reporters. Where are the masks going? Are they going out the back door? How do you go from 10,000 to 300,000? And we have that in a lot of different places. So somebody should probably look into that, because I just don't see from a practical standpoint how that's possible to go from that to that. And we have that happening in numerous places.
0: So Trump basically says people like Rob Sarah and firefighters are stealing them. President Mayhem is saying all kinds of crazy and inaccurate shit from the White House now daily. But thankfully, we still have General Cuomo, who is still leading and is still understandably pissed.
5: Well, California just outbid you. It's like being on eBay with 50 other states bidding on a ventilator. And then FEMA gets involved and FEMA starts bidding. And now FEMA is bidding on top of the fifty. So FEMA is driving up the price. What sense does this make?
0: It makes no sense. None. That's because our president doesn't have a plan of any kind. He's failed every step of the way on a level that now truly boggles the mind. And, per usual, Trump is not listening to the doctors, he's not listening to the governors in the fight, and he's not uniting our forces in the face of the enemy. He's actually continuing to divide us, even now.
1: These are people that should be appreciated. He calls all the governors. I tell him, I mean, I'm a different type of person. I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. You're wasting your time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. Well, it doesn't make any difference don't what happens. Call the governor of Washington? No, no, you know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't call.
0: So he won't call the governors. He won't get our frontline fighters what they need. He won't listen to Dr. Fauci. He won't listen to Governor Cuomo. But apparently, he'll listen to this guy.
7: Gave us grace on November 8, thousand sixteen, to change the course we were on. God had been taken out of our schools and lives. A nation had turned his back on God. And I encourage you to use this time at home to get to home to get back in the Word, read our Bibles and spend time with our families. Our president gave us so much hope where just a few short months ago, we had the best economy, the lowest unemployment and wages going up. It was amazing. With our great president, vice president and this administration and all the great people in this country praying daily, we will get through this and get back to a place that's stronger and safer than ever.
0: If you don't recognize his voice, that's the My Pillow guy. The My Pillow Guy. You may have seen his commercials on late night TV if you've been vegging out over the last couple weeks. But the my pillow guy was at the White House. Mike Lindell is his name. And our doctors and firefighters don't have masks. But Trump makes time for the My Pillow guy? The My Pillow guy gets time at the podium. But the Secretary of Veterans Affairs? Nope, he's MIA. So as the number of veterans dead from COVID nineteen tripled in three days, there was no sign of the veteran secretary, but there's the my pillow guy at the podium. More on the VA in a minute. But the rapid spread of the stupid virus is not limited only to the White House. And it's not only limited to Republicans. No, it's spread far beyond just one party. And it seems the one guy most devastatingly impacted with an infection of stupid is the mayor of New York, Democrat, and only person still campaigning for Bernie Sanders, Bill de Blasio.
8: Let's talk about the way that you've handled uh, the response in New York City. I want you to take a listen to yourself And your message to New Yorkers, these are three different clips, one's from January, one's from February, and one's from early this month.
9: It's important to just go about your lives, uh, continue living as you have. New Yorkers should go about our lives, continue doing what we do. This should not stop you from going about your life, should not stop you from going to Chinatown and going out to eat. We want people still to go on about their lives. We want people uh, to rest assured that a lot is being done to protect them.
8: That last clip was from March 13th, just about two weeks ago. In retrospect, is that message, at least in part, to blame for how rapidly the virus has spread across the city?
9: Jake, we should not be focusing, in my view, on anything looking back on any level of government right now. This is just about how we save lives going forward. We all were working. Everybody was working with the information we had, and trying, of course, to avoid panic. And at that point, for all of us, trying to keep, uh, not only protect lives, but keep the economy and the livelihoods together, keep ensuring that people had money to pay for food and medicine. I mean, this was a very different world just a short time ago. But the bottom line is, none of us have time to look backwards. I'm trying to figure out how we get through to Sunday, next Sunday, and then what we do the week after that. And that's the only thing we should be talking about in this country. Did you hear that? That's what failure
0: sounds like. Of course he doesn't want to look back or look forward. He's a disaster. Bad leaders never want to talk about accountability and never take responsibility. It's the same bullshit he used to try when he failed to close schools after snowstorms. It's who he is. He failed us all. He's failed us all so many times before, and he'll do it again. That's why I've started the hashtag impeach de Blasio. Why are we going to wait another year and let this guy have an entire year or more to completely screw up the frontline battlefield of America's war on COVID-19? If he was a battlefield commander, we'd replace him. But he's a battlefield commander here. We don't replace him. We're just going to sit there and let him stay in office another year and a half. I say no. That's why I say impeach de Blasio. His dereliction of duty and his failure to protect his city is insurmountable. He's lost our confidence, he's lost our unity, he's lost our respect, and he needs to go, get him out of there, impeach de Blasio. And it's going to get worse. One in three New Yorkers has someone in their household that's been laid off because of the coronavirus. And we're getting hit hard here. But despite all that, in New York City, every night now at 7 p.m., just like they did in Italy, we cheer our healthcare workers and our doctors, and our nurses, and our EMTs. That's audio from Jackson Heights, a few blocks away from Elmhurst Hospital, an epicenter for the coronavirus in New York City. And the hashtag is clap because we care. And that's what we do. We clap because we care. And I urge you to do the same thing wherever you are at 7 p.m. If you want a moment of unity with your fellow Americans, step outside at 7 o'clock wherever you are and clap because we care show our first responders how much you appreciate them and take a moment to unite as a country because here in New York, the sirens just keep coming nonstop again tonight. As we ended a live show the other night from my living room, an FDNY ambulance rolled up just outside my window. People could see it in the shot, but the frequency of the ambulances is increasing. They've been coming all day long. The war is real people. Don't let anybody tell you different. I'm reporting from the front lines and the war is here and it's coming to you. So be a helper, especially here in New York right now, support the FDNY foundation and support the Ray Pfeiffer foundation they are on the front lines of supporting those FDNY heroes and so many others, FDNY heroes that don't have masks right now. So look for the helpers. We need that help in New York city and president mayhem. He ain't helping. He actually had to make bad things worse on Saturday night. He tweeted that he's considering a quarantine. This is what he wrote. I am considering developing a quarantine of developing hotspots, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. A decision will be made one way or another shortly. So he tweeted this out late on Saturday night, immediately sending panic across all three states and across the country. The only thing this madness tweet did was create more stress and chaos here in New York and in New Jersey and in Connecticut. Trump can't stop migrants from coming across the Mexican border. If he thinks he can lock down the entire populations of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, he's in for another massive failure. And he's all over the place lately, more than usual even. And he might need a doctor, a real doctor, like Dr. Fauci, not the White House doctor Ronnie Jackson who he put up for VA secretary and told everybody that Trump weighed 230 pounds. Not that guy. Trump might need a doctor, a real doctor.
4: Oh, help me, please doctor, i'm damaged there's a pain where there
0: once was a heart yeah trump probably needs a doctor but america needs a doctor too lots of doctors we could lose as many as 300,000 americans even if we lose 100,000 americans that's twice the number of americans that died in vietnam and now you know more than ever stakes is high i've said it before there are two kinds of people in this world right now the people who get that we're at war and the people who don't if you're listening you're probably the former if you're not you will be by the end of this podcast because make no mistake this is war but despite the stakes Trump is still not taking the doctor's orders. He thinks he can beat science. He thinks he can pray away the virus. He's failing to understand and respond to the urgency of this moment. We're all at war, and he's at the mall buying my pillows, which are probably all infected with the damn coronavirus anyway. But he's not the only one that isn't moving fast enough for understanding that we're truly a nation and a world at war. I told you to watch the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs. I told you the VA and the DOD can be the cavalry, or they can be a disaster. I talked about it for a few episodes here on the pod. I've talked about it on CNN and other media. The VA can help, but they've got to be honest about what they need. Just like your doctor can only help you if you're honest about your symptoms, the VA has to be honest about theirs. And now, there's clearly coronavirus in VA facilities nationwide. It's gotten into the bloodstream of the entire National Health Care Network, with cases now in almost 100 locations nationwide. But make no mistake, it's in our bloodstream. It's gotten into our bloodstream, and it's spreading. And there's coronavirus nationwide and problems for the VA nationwide and those problems are starting to rupture. I told you about the 13 dead in Holyoke. This is the concern about what could happen at VA nursing home facilities nationwide. It is state-run, but inspected by the VA annually. So when will President Mayhem finally address the needs of our veterans? And where is VA Secretary Wilkie? I continue to use the hashtag, where is Wilkie? Because if you're not angry about this stuff, you're not paying attention. As of April 1st, the VA's had 53 dead, up from 41 yesterday, and of the new dead, two are in Detroit, four in New Orleans, four in New York. So 10 of the 12 total dead reported are in those three places alone, and they've still only done 16,000 tests nationally. New York's doing more than that daily, and they've got 1,600 cases, up from 1,300 cases the day before. So VA is reporting positive COVID-19 cases at almost 100 locations now, and many more cities have been added. There's a spike to 33 in Puerto Rico, 48 in Indianapolis, Indiana, and both could follow New Orleans and Detroit as emerging hotspots. And in some important news you might've missed, the VA has finally broken the seal to start what's called its fourth mission, to serve civilians. They did it here in New York City. They transferred five non-COVID patients from community hospitals to VA New York Harbor Healthcare Systems, Manhattan and Brooklyn campuses. And now in a new place, East Orange, New Jersey, they've allocated 20 beds. Now, that's likely only a drop in the bucket in what they'll need in such a densely populated and poor area like East Orange. You'll also hear more about that when we talk to Dr. Paul Hazer in just a couple minutes. But the internal issues at VA continue to rise. The leading union is now suing the government, including the Department of Veterans Affairs. These include janitorial and maintenance staff who feel like they've been working for weeks in facilities where there have been documented cases of COVID-19 without adequate protection. And since we're digging a little deep on veterans this episode, it was also National Vietnam War Veterans Day this week. And I want those Vietnam veterans to know they're never forgotten and always appreciated, especially now. And in America's new fight against the coronavirus, so many of our Vietnam veterans are leading the way again in communities nationwide. And you're needed now more than ever, and we salute you. But as we recognize National Vietnam War Veterans Day, know that their median age is 68 years old. Many of them are facing Agent Orange health issues and are at higher risk for coronavirus. So if you want to recognize National Vietnam War Veterans Day, be their advocates and demand that the VA get them care, protection, and support they deserve. Because the VA is not coming clean. They're not even coming out in public. Secretary of Veterans Affairs Wilkie is still MIA, and the VA in Manchester and the Department of Veterans Affairs nationally are refusing to do media interviews. As things continue to get worse nationwide, they're digging in even deeper than before. And of course, still no daily briefings from Secretary Wilkie, who has not appeared publicly since last Wednesday. He's been MIA for over a week, not a single public appearance since last Wednesday. So the hashtag I use is where is Wilkie? And I'm talking to frontline civilian doctors in New York City's hardest-hit hospitals who still haven't seen any sign of help from VA, despite the activation of their fourth mission. And I asked Dr. Paul Hazer about that, so stick around. But the public still hasn't seen any sign of Wilkie, who hasn't appeared publicly in over a week. Media folks, it's time to ask Trump, where is Wilkie? Because given the magnitude of the threat nationwide, and especially for a population of veterans that are 50% over 65, confusion could turn to chaos. Chaos could turn to catastrophe. And we need transparency, competence, speed, and leadership now. And my sources continue to tell me that local VA COVID-19 numbers are higher than being reported. So if you work at a VA and you have information you think will serve our community and serve the public good, my DMs are open on Twitter anytime. And I'll keep your name out of it. Many of you reached out to me this week, and I was able to sound the alarm on what's happening in New York, in Ann Arbor, in Cleveland, in Detroit. When you step forward, you're helping the doctors, you're helping the helpers, and truth is the best medicine, even when it tastes like shit. But unfortunately, there's another major force that's still not taking its medicine, a group that doesn't really understand that we're at war against the virus. And ironically, it's the folks who are responsible for fighting our wars, the Department of Defense. And they really need a doctor. (laughs) So our troops need a doctor. They need lots of doctors. They also need a secretary of defense because secretary of defense Esper is failing. Last episode, I warned you the DOD wasn't ready and facing problems. Now, more of those problems have come to light. And in particular, there's become a focus on an aircraft carrier, the USS Roosevelt, the captain of the nuclear aircraft carrier has more than 100 sailors infected with the coronavirus. And he pleaded with Navy officials for resources to allow the isolation of his entire crew and to avoid possible deaths in a situation that he described as falling apart. Now, the San Francisco Chronicle had the exclusive. The desperate plea came from Captain Brett Crozier, In a letter obtained exclusively by the Chronicle and confirmed by a senior officer on board the aircraft carrier, Theodore Roosevelt, which had been docked in Guam following a COVID-19 outbreak among the crew of more than 4,000 less than a week ago. In his letter, the captain wrote, this will require a political solution, but it's the right thing to do. He said, sailors do not need to die. If we do not act now, we're failing to properly care for our most trusted asset. Are sailors it was a four-page letter and crozier said that a small contingent of sailors infected had been offboarded but most of the crew have to stay on the ship following official guidelines for 14-day quarantines where social distancing is impossible he continued due to a warship's inherent limitations of space we're not doing this the spread of the disease is ongoing and accelerating and he asked for compliant quarantine rooms on shore in Guam for his entire crew as soon as possible. He continued, removing the majority of personnel from a deployed U.S. nuclear aircraft carrier and isolating them for two weeks may seem like an extraordinary measure. This is a necessary risk. Keeping over 4,000 young men and women on board the TR is an unnecessary risk, and it breaks faith with those sailors entrusted to our care. Now, this is basic stuff. And Secretary of Defense Esper should listen to Captain Crozier. And it shouldn't have taken this. And as retired admiral and brilliant guy, James Stravides told the Chronicle, unfortunately, naval vessels are ideal breeding grounds for the spread of viruses because it's impossible to do social distancing on one. They've got tight quarters on board, and the ship's problems will compound because you can't just tie the vessel up and let everybody go ashore. It's full of weapons, billions of dollars of equipment, fire hazards, and nuclear reactors. So yeah, there's that. Up to 30% of the U.S. military's COVID-19 cases are aboard a single aircraft carrier currently in Guam. In terms of the coronavirus, the USS Theodore Roosevelt is like the Queens, New York of the military right now. But speaking of New York and the military, a ship full of doctors is finally here. After a ridiculous photo op politicization event by Trump sending the ship off, the USNS Comfort is now here in New York City. And the USNS Mercy arrived in Los Angeles. New York and L.A. are not quite burning, but they're getting hot. And they definitely need the doctors and these ships. So thanks to the crews. And my thanks to the crew of the Comfort. The sight of you coming into New York was a welcome inspiration, especially to the kids in this city. And it's here. So was the 101st and other units setting up field hospitals in New York City. And the incredible Army Corps of Engineers and National Guard unit turned the entire Javits Center into a hospital in about a week. So the International Auto Show usually happens there in April. I go with my kid. It's just across the highway from the car club. And this year, it'll be a hospital. But the military is being activated to fight coronavirus while it's simultaneously being hit. The Marine Corps is now temporarily stopping all new recruits from heading to Marine Corps Recruit Depot at Parris Island for boot camp because the coronavirus is breaking out there too. And I told you earlier, the IRR has also been activated, which was announced on Friday night at about midnight. It was a hell of a late night Friday night news dump millions of veterans nationwide after hearing about that news were scrambling to find their paperwork and see if they're in the ir or not and it's likely the beginning of call-ups that could go on for months or even years meanwhile a different kind of doctor dr doom himself is at it again on the korean peninsula south korea says north korea has fired an unidentified projectile into the sea so in recent weeks Pyongyang has fired missiles and artillery shells in an effort to try to upgrade its capability amid deadlock nuclear talks with the U.S. Of course they have. Expect America's enemies to test us now more than ever. The hashtag, our enemies are celebrating. And that's part of why this week the Army in Stuttgart said it can no longer release the number of coronavirus cases based on the units because of the Department of Defense directive that cites operational security concerns. This is actually a smart and probably overdue move. They need to maintain OPSEC or operational security. You don't want the enemy to know how many troops are down in each unit. And for all our forces worldwide, the number one enemy is the virus. And every doctor in America is recommending that we focus on fighting that virus. But even during the war, even when Waffle House shuts down, there's one thing that just won't close. One disease we just can't beat something that's more vexing sometimes than the virus, and could be the determining factor in how we fight it, assuming we're still fighting in the fall, which we should, and it will shape how and if we rise up as a nation afterward. I'm talking about the race for president. So, not much to report here, actually, except that it's still a thing. It's like a tumor that won't go away and you can't cut out. And by it... I mean Bernie Sanders, who every week loves to prove my point that them Democrats always eat their own. Because Bernie Sanders, who hopefully has a doctor by his side permanently right now after a recent heart attack and being almost 80 years old, refuses to go away. Here is the political cannibal-in-chief himself, Senator Bernie Sanders, versus Whoopi Goldberg on The View.
4: You intend to stay in this race uh, for president because you believe there is a path to victory. I want to know what that path is because this feels a little bit like it did when you didn't come out when uh, Hillary Clinton was clearly the person... Folks were going for. So, can you explain why you're still in the race and what this uh, path is that you
7: see? Well, one of the reasons—that's not quite accurate. I worked as hard as I could to uh, for Hillary Clinton, but the reason. There is a, uh, a well, a, but uh, a Bernie. A just, figure.
4: just so we're clear, you you worked for Hillary, but it took you a very, very long time to 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 hop in, and your people also. It took a very long time for them no, to I, hop in. So sorry. We'll I, be, when I say that, that's what I'm be, talking about.
7: Yeah, well, I I don't accept that characterization, but the point is, okay. people have a right. Why are you still in the democracy? race? People have a right, last I heard, people in a democracy have a right to vote and they have a right to vote for the agenda that they think can work for America, especially in this very, very difficult moment. We are assessing our campaign, as a matter of fact, where we want to go forward. But people in a democracy Mm -hmm. do have a right to vote. And right now, in this unprecedented moment in American history, I think we need to have a very serious discussion about how we go forward.
0: Okay, Sanders, you have that discussion with yourself and Bill de Blasio. Do it over Skype. Don't go see him in person. Don't go see anyone in person. Because at your age, given your health issues, you might need to stay the hell up in Vermont away from everyone for a while, at least if you want to make it, man. And it looks like Joe Biden's thinking the same thing. Because now we have a new thing. Basement Biden. And I don't have a song for it. But Biden's now campaigning virtually which is actually better for him. It's less physically demanding. There's less variables. There's less risk. And he's been shaky, but he's still shining, especially as Consoler-in-Chief, which is what we'll need through all of this and after this and hopefully after Trump. Here's Biden with Anderson Cooper on CNN. Things that's especially awful about the deaths of people with coronavirus is that
8: they often die alone without family or friends by their side because of right. uh, the, the needs to protect uh, everybody, uh, no one to hold their hand or family members at least holding their hand.
9: More than a thousand families in the United States have had to plan funerals that almost no one can attend for the same reasons. I'm wondering what, as we close tonight, what your message is to those families and, and to all the country.
4: My message is God love you. I, uh, you know, I've, I've lost a couple children. I've lost a wife. I've, I've, uh, um, and it is, it is incredibly difficult to go through. And it's harder to go through when you haven't had an opportunity to be with the person while they're dying. My mom, my dad, I was able to be with them and lie in bed with them and they took their last breaths. My son, I was able to do that. My deceased wife, I was not able to do that. I was not able to, I was not able to be there. And it makes a gigantic difference for people. And seek help. Seek help afterwards. Seek help to talk to people who've been through it. So they know, they know, they can tell you that you can get through it. You really can It's possible. But boy, it is so, so, so hard. And that's one of the cruelest, cruelest thing that's happening. A very good friend of ours is, her mom's in a nursing home in, in, uh, in, in Boston. She showed us pictures. She sits outside of the room, sits outside the room in a chair, outside the window, and just puts her hand in the window so her mom can touch, touch her hand in the window. It's, it's just, this is the human connection is so, so profoundly important. Hmm. And uh, when you don't have it, you've got to get help. And by the way, well, I'm not going to get my phone. But anyway, uh, those who have been through that, I, uh, you can contact my campaign. I'm happy to try to talk to you. Yeah. Not oh, well. that I'm an expert, but just haven't been there. I just, I'm so sorry for you.
0: So Biden almost gave out his real phone number. He almost offers to give his cell phone number out to the entire country. And meanwhile, Trump won't even call governors who are trying to save American lives on the front lines. What Biden's showing is kindness. And it's a hell of a contrast. And it's what we need more of. It's just what the doctor ordered. But what the doctor did not order is any more candidates. And it's official. You don't have to worry about Andrew Cuomo jumping in because he says he's not running.
8: Uh, With all of this adulation that you're getting for doing your job, are you thinking about running for president? Tell the audience.
5: No, no.
8: No, you won't answer?
5: No, I answered. The answer is no.
8: No, you're not thinking about Sometimes
5: it? Sometimes it? it's one word, I said no.
8: Have no. you thought about it? No. Are you open to thinking about it? No. Might you think about it at some point? No. How can you know what you might think about at some point right now?
5: Because I know what I might think about and what I won't think about. But you're a great interviewer,
0: by the way. Appreciate it. Learn from the best. So Cuomo is not running and Sanders is still running and Biden's staying in the basement. So watch this space, folks. It's not getting the spotlight anymore, but it's still incredibly important as the race continues for the White House. Look for the helpers. That's a theme of this show, and it's especially important now, because this is the greatest time we'll ever see in our lives for helpers and for heroes. And that includes the brother of the guy you just heard in that last clip, a guy I'm very proud to know and call my friend, Chris Cuomo. This is a time of war, and in a time of war, People are revealed for who they really are. That's been true of Trump and de Blasio. It's also true of Andrew Cuomo and of Chris Cuomo. The realness of these two guys is a real source of inspiration and strength and love. And Chris is a real guy, a good guy, a caring guy, a guy who's always looked out for me. He's always looked out for New York, for our military and our vets, and for the little guys and gals, and for America. And he's tested positive for the coronavirus.
5: When he told me he had the coronavirus, uh, it scared me, it frightened me. Why? Because we still don't know. I'm talking about my little brother. This is my best friend. Now I'm out of control, and there's nobody who can tell me, and Dr. Zucker can't tell me anything, and Tony Fauci can't tell me anything because nobody really knows. He did a show last night from his basement what a gutsy, courageous thing to do. Kudos to him. My pop would be proud. I love you, little brother. And even though this isn't a flattering picture, I did not pick this picture with your mouth open, but it is suitable in some ways.
8: He picked it. And what else am I going to do? I'm in the basement. Uh, What am I going to sit around all day and watch? that there's not the right information being given still, that we're letting states make choices about whether or not they do the only single thing that can make a difference for this country. Nobody can sit on the sidelines right now. Least of all, somebody who's been blessed with a platform to talk to you about it. And the irony about my brother joking about how I look is not lost on me, all right? Like he's some box of chocolates, but his heart Uh, not just for me as his brother uh, and family, but for the desperation to protect. That's his job, okay? His job is to protect the people of this state, just like every governor, just like this president. That's their job, do everything you can to protect. And it's easy for someone like me. I'm lucky, okay? No matter how my journey goes with coronavirus, The life I've had, the family I have to take care of me, the ability I have to self-quarantine and people bringing me food and a wife Uh, and my kids, thank God, didn't have it. Look how lucky I got here. I want you to be thinking about everybody who's not as lucky as I am, who are dealing with the same that I am and 10 times worse, especially after what I learned last night. This virus came at me. I've never seen anything like it okay so yeah I've had a I've had a fever you've had a fever but 102 103 103 plus that wouldn't quit and it was like somebody was beating me like a piñata and I was shivering so much that Sanjay's right I chipped my tooth these are not cheap okay and they call them the rigors, like rigors, R-I-G-O-R-S, but rigors. So the sun comes up, I'm awake. I was up all night. It was one of the, I'm telling you, I was hallucinating. I, my, my dad was talking to me. Um, I was seeing people from college, people I haven't seen in it forever. It was, it was freaky what I lived through last night. And it may happen again tonight. Doctor says it may happen like five, eight times. You know, I get it now. And if you match that with chest constriction and people can't breathe, I totally get why we're losing so many people and why our hospitals are so crowded. So, here's the message don't be me, but more importantly, be better than we're being right now. Care enough not just to stay home, but to stay on our leaders to make sure that they're doing everything they can to limit this. I'm telling you, this is the part of our lives we will live through and remember the most. How do you want to be remembered during this time?
0: Hear his message he's right. How do you want to be remembered during this time? And to Chris, we're sending all our love and strength to you, my friend. We're all grateful for your leadership, and especially now. And we'll be back to push-up challenges soon. But stay strong down there. We need you to get up here soon and for a long time to come. Because for millions of Americans who watch you on TV and hear you on the radio, you're our doctor of a different kind, a doctor feel-good. Chris's attitude and his effort is inspiring. You know it if you heard him on the show a couple of months back. But he asks an important question. How do you want to be remembered during this time? The good news, in the midst of all this bad news, is that even though our president and many politicians aren't stepping up, Americans nationwide, people worldwide, are stepping up to rise to the moment. And that's exactly the kind of medicine we all need. Not just to fight the virus, but to keep our souls and our spirits. Because crisis doesn't always bring out the worst in people. Actually, it often brings out the best. Dan Gardner is a New York Times bestselling author who writes about the science of fear. And he wrote this week, Please remember, the idea that when disaster strikes, people panic and social order collapses is very popular. It's also a myth. A huge research literature shows that disasters make people more pro-social. They cooperate. They support each other. They're better than ever. But the myth matters because it can lead people to take counterproductive actions and adopt policies. The simple truth is we're a fantastically social species and threats only fuel our instinct to pro-social behavior. Incidentally, this point is made and forgotten after every disaster. Remember 9-11? Everyone was astonished that the snarling, greeting, individualistic New Yorkers were suddenly behaving like selfless saints. No need for surprise. That's humanity. That's how we roll. And he gave some advice to leaders. He said In a crisis, forget petty calculation. Appeal to people's better angels. Tell them you have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Urge them to come together to work and struggle and sacrifice, as Lincoln and Churchill did, and they will. Forgot to mention the most dramatic illustration. It was widely believed in the 1930s that mass aerial bombardment of cities would produce panic and social collapse. It didn't. Anywhere. In fact, it created the blitz spirit everywhere strategic bombing was inflicted. So even when the bombs are dropping, even when the virus is spreading, the blitz spirit can emerge or the virus spirit can emerge. And that's what we see as helpers are coming from everywhere New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees and his wife Brittany just gave $5 million to help people in Louisiana. They're going to focus on feeding children and meals programs, seniors, and families in need. Brees also said he'll continue to do it for as long as it takes. And there are others, like this amazing lady.
4: This says coat of many colors, and it's got the little girl that's supposed to be me when I was little and wearing her little coat of many colors.
0: That's Dolly Parton. And she posted on Facebook that she will start reading to kids every Thursday night for the next 10 weeks, including Llama Llama Red Pajama, one of my personal favorites. And the veterans of Team Rubicon are also stepping up. If you don't know about them, they're an organization of veterans that run into disaster areas to help. And Team Rubicon now has 70 operations in motion, 70. That's more ops than they ran in 2017, and more ops than they ran in the first four and a half years of TR's history. They're coast-to-coast and border-to-border, and this is what they're built for. The hashtag is Neighbors Helping Neighbors, or you can go to TeamRubiconUSA.org. Others are stepping up too. New Balance Sneakers is working to manufacture facial masks during the coronavirus pandemic. I love New Balance Sneakers and now I love them even more. And even a company from an industry I despise is stepping up. In a pandemic, the measles of public transportation doesn't seem that bad anymore. And even a scooter company is stepping up to help. This will be the first ever nice thing I ever say about scooters on this show. But Spin, a Ford Motor Company-owned electric scooter company, says it will begin offering free rides to healthcare workers in Detroit and seven other cities starting this month. The 30-minute rides will be available to doctors, nurses, technicians, pharmacists, aides, and hospital facility staffs. That's nice. But if you're one of those folks, wear a helmet, please, or you're going to need a doctor of your own. Them things are dangerous and annoying as hell. But the heroes are coming, big and small loud and soft, and they're inspiring many others. Helpers and heroes are coming from everywhere. There is silver lining of all this madness. Like in World War II, people across this nation are stepping up. In World War II, we needed infantry. We needed tank drivers. We needed pilots. In this war, we need nurses, we need scientists, and we need doctors. As we all bond now in the suck of war, hero doctors will lead us to our BC day, our victory over coronavirus day. One day, we will emerge. That day will come because of doctors like Paul Hazer. Dr. Paul Hazer grew up in Chicago and graduated from Northwestern Medical School. He's an expert in many areas to include the latest minimally invasive endovascular techniques and open surgical interventions. Dr. Paul Hazer has held several prominent faculty, committee, local, and national vascular surgery appointments and has completed more than 80 combined journal, book chapters, and presentations. He's been named a principal investigator in several national and international trials, but his passion is caring for the underserved. And his return to Brookdale University and Hospital Medical Center and the work with One Brooklyn Health has provided what he considers an opportunity to give back to the community. He's worked in the U.S., in Canada, and around the world. And he's answered calls to serve in crisis zones before. In 2010, he volunteered for duty in Haiti after the catastrophic magnitude 7 earthquake hit. 250,000 people died, and 300,000 were injured, and 1.5 million people were forced to live in makeshift camps. It was one of the greatest humanitarian disasters in recent history. And Paul was there, helping. And when our country went to war in the Middle East after 9-11, Paul volunteered four times to work at the Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany, the only forward-station medical center for U.S. and coalition forces. It's the largest U.S. hospital outside the U.S. and the sole military medical center for more than 200,000 beneficiaries throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Landstuhl is the only level three trauma center verified outside the United States. It's also the evacuation and treatment center for all U.S. service members and civilians and members of our 56 coalition forces serving in Afghanistan and Iraq and Africa Command, Central Command, and European Command. In Landstuhl in 2011, Paul performed the first endovascular aortic graft implantation procedure ever at the center. An American sniper had a piece of shrapnel next to his heart. And Paul will tell you the story of what happened next. More than 95,000 wounded warriors from Afghanistan and Iraq have been treated at Landstuhl since 2001, and Paul was there, helping. And now, Paul's on the front lines of our fight against the coronavirus, inside one of the hardest-hit hospitals in the world, one of the most dangerous places, deep behind the lines, surrounded by the enemy. The virus is everywhere, and still, he puts on a mask, he summons the courage, he risks his life... And he goes in to help. He's a good man. A guy I'm honored to call my friend. A few weeks ago, folks respected him. Now, they appreciate him. And they applaud him and all the other frontline healthcare workers all across New York City every night at 7 p.m. when the shift changes happen at the hospitals, as we all should. He's a new kind of citizen soldier for a new kind of war. He's answered the call, like the Minutemen in the Revolution versus the British like our grandfathers for D-Day, like so many of you after 9-11. He's volunteering to fight in the fight of our time, maybe the fight for all times, our world war. A war we will survive eventually. We will be victorious over the virus because of doctors like Paul. And in this episode, we'll be following the doctor's orders and bringing you a customized prescription of the four eyes with surgical precision. It's an incision of integrity. It's an infusion of information. It's an implant of impact and a surgical suture of inspiration. The doctor is in the house and it's the doctors and nurses and physicians, assistants and EMTs and so many other medical professionals that will lead us all eventually to victory in this war. But before we get there, we've got some painful days of surgery, treatment and rehab ahead. The road to our BC day is long, and the virus is a monster. But the doctor is here to give us sound advice, to hold our hand, and to get us through it. To get us all through it. Our great American experiment, the body politic, is wounded badly. We've lost a lot of blood, and we'll lose a lot more. But we can stop the bleeding. We can turn the corner. We can get back on our feet. And we can learn to walk again. We can be, eventually, stronger in the broken places. Thanks to the doctors of this country and this world that so selflessly take an oath to sacrifice themselves for the rest of us. Because that's what true leadership is. And that's what true heroism is. And that's what our doctors nationwide are demonstrating right now. In hospitals all across America and all across the globe. Welcome to our world war. Welcome to a reflection about life, death, and the future of our fight. Welcome to a celebration of the helpers and the best among us. And welcome to a call to arms. The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 53. around the country and around the globe uh, we have an exceptionally important heroic timely conversation to bring to you uh, from New York City. I am very very honored um, and humbled to have with us today on Angry Americans the great and powerful Dr. Paul Hazer. How are you my friend? I'm good. Uh, I don't know about great and
10: powerful but uh, I really appreciate uh, your intro so I'm doing well.
0: Uh, maintaining,
10: I'm, as I tell most people, and we're in maintaining our health, maintaining the calm,
0: trying our best. You're doing an, an incredibly heroic job. I mean, I, I think this is now a global war and you are a frontline warrior in that war. So thank you for taking time away from the hospital, away from the fight, away from your family. What little time you do get with your family in the middle of all this to up, update people from the front lines of, of what's happening. So before we get to that, folks, you know, we know each other because we live in the same building <laughs> and it's a sign of the times you're up a couple floors and over in exactly the same building in New York city that I'm in. Um, But we're maintaining the social distance uh, and we wanted to capture video and I wanted people to be able to to see your face and hear your voice at this important time. Um, But you've been in a lot of places. uh, You've saved a lot of lives. You've changed a lot of lives. Um, But before we get to that, it is it is a sobering time and I want to still make sure people get insight into who you are. So what are you drinking, man?
10: So (laughs) what's your drink of choice? I'm having some uh, some some scotch, some monkey shoulder. Uh, I can don't know if you can see that. We
0: can see it. We uh, can see it. I want everyone to know I'm not on call. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody I'm deserves <laughs> If anybody deserves a drink right now, it's you, my friend. So cheers. 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 All right, so let's let's get right into it, man. I mean, you and I have been in touch over the last couple of weeks. You know, our kids play together. I see you on the playground every day. You know, you have come to events before you listen to the show. um, And now, you know, in the last couple of weeks, it's just all twisted. And, you know, the guy that I know from the playground is a frontline leader in this war for our city, for our country, for the world. So, you know, give me an insight into, uh, first of all, tell people, where you work, what you do, and what you think, starting out, they need to know most. We'll go into greater detail, but kind of paint the picture for them. If they're watching it on TV, if they're outside, what, where are you, what do you do, and what's it like? So, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, on, I'm a backup player
10: as a vascular surgeon. I'm, I'm a vascular surgeon over at Brookdale Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, which is right in the thick of things. If you look at um, the corona map of the high-density uh, Brooklyn Brookdale is right there, along with several other hospitals, um, and and I do support a lot of the um, the people that are really in the front line, working in the emergency room, um, fielding that, or working in the intensive care unit, and and then have to go down there and work there as well. So I work there. I work at Kingsbrook Jewish as well, as part of the One Brooklyn Health System. Um, again, as a vascular surgeon, so but I've had to ramp up my education about Corona. Virology, epidemiology, curves, all that kind of stuff, um, and and we've been doing things sort of in the in the background in some ways in terms of helping setting up the televideo telemedicine for people so that we can still keep track of and and more importantly support our patients. Uh, a lot of our patients have chronic illnesses and they they need that and they're really at high risk if they were to, to contract the virus. So we're kind of helping in terms of that. Helping organize PPE distribution, getting beds opened up, you know, um, and even uh, in terms of the operating room to keep that going. But at the same time, find ways to uh, keep our nurses safe, keep the aides safe, the people that are cleaning the floors and all. Those are the people really in the front line.
0: So you've been in Haiti after the earthquake. You did, I think, four rotations to Landstuhl to work on uh, U.S. military troops, and I want to get more into that in a second. But you've been in intense environments with trauma, with uh, adversity. Um, how does this compare, Paul? What is it like right now? And and give us an insight into your expert analysis. You know, how bad, rough, uh, tough—however you want to describe it. How how is it?
10: This is, you know, it's it's interesting because Brookdale. Was, has, it's a safety net hospital. It's always had very high trauma. We have about 30% penetrating trauma. Um, and, uh, and one thing I will add, and I'll get to your question, is that at least, thankfully, the trauma has been down. It's not zero, but it has been down. People are social distancing themselves from shooting and stabbing each other, which is great <laughs> as well. Uh, it, you know, it was always, the emergency room was always a bit crazy, uh, overflowing, particularly on the weekend nights, the summer, et cetera. And this is this is really unimaginable, because it's sort of like a Twilight Zone episode. One of the surgeons says, "This is like, you know, here's an umbrella and here's the here's the hurricane. You know, Storm Sandy's coming. We'll give you a, a really nice umbrella. You stand outside and stop all the rains. Like, what what are we gonna do? And and it's it it hasn't quite peaked, but it's the you don't almost want to imagine how bad it is because You, you know, it does compare a little bit with Haiti. When we, when we got over there, the hospital had been decimated. The nursing school with nurses inside was completely flattened. You could smell the corpses, et cetera. It was terrible. And we were operating out of a locker room with a headlight and, and you were bargaining with anesthesia. You know, could you give a little bit, do you have this? Well, if you bring the sutures, we can do that. And now we're in the situation in New York city, of all places where you're feeling the same way, like, well, if you give me a gown, I can get you an extra set of gloves. And then we can, you know, put in that line that you need to for the dialysis machine or those kinds
0: mm-hmm. of things. It's, it's feeling very surreal. And, and so- I, w- I want to come back to the PPE discussion, which is, you know, front and center in the national media anyway. But um, the actual uh, you know, the, the casualty numbers is what's striking to me. You sent me a note the other day and said you lost, I think, 13 people in one night. Um, so can you break down what it looks like when patients come in um, and describe, you know, I think some folks haven't seen it, um, you know, you, you hear the stories, but can you describe number one, what are the numbers look like? And, and if there's a trajectory, if there's a change in the numbers, and then number two, if you can describe what it's like when a patient comes in. What do you see? What do you evaluate? The the, the story that people aren't seeing unless they're either a frontline healthcare worker or they're coming down with COVID-19. Describe that if you would, please, Paul. So it's, it's a
10: combination. Most of the patients seem to be coming with, uh, an ambulance coming through on a stretcher, looking very sick, just very ill, febrile, coughing, um, sort of zoned out, you know, really almost not, not, uh, not with it, as you'd say, or not, not as coherent as you'd expect. We do have some people that walk in to the emergency room waiting area. I don't tend to see them. I send, tend to see people that are sicker. And again, I often don't see any of these patients until the emergency room, the triage, et cetera, has already seen the patients. So I'm seeing them with a stretcher. Um, the numbers are, are definitely still going up. I think today um, I got a um, stat about 167 positive, and another sixty or so that are under persons under investigation, which now about half of them to to eighty percent are turning positive as well. Last Friday it was hundred and seven patients, so it's it's not doubling like it had been, uh, which is good, uh, but it is still rising, and we're expecting it to continue to rise. Um, you know, our hospital originally had about four hundred. Uh, 20 beds or so and nearly all of them are full and and beyond i think you know we have 30 patients right now intubated um just with this and thankfully we've we actually elon musk donated some uh, uh ventilators to brookdale uh through tesla and but you know as uh as governor cuomo put it well you know what am I going to do with this small number when I need such a big
0: number? It's like a drop in the in the bucket of the ocean, you know. Can you talk about um, morale, Paul? You know, you've got you know the, these incredible heroic workers that we now appreciate, you know, on a level we never did before. But can you talk about morale? And I know as an infantry officer, how important it is to have your troops, you know, morale uh, focused on and, and, and understood. And, and in my experience, nothing uh, hit morale harder than, than a lack of clarity of mission. And we have that here. We have, I think, a pretty clear mission or a lack of support. And, you know, you were uh, on German TV the other day, you know, with like one pair of gloves and one mask. Um, Can you talk about morale and get into the PPE discussion? Describe what that scene is like and what you all need right now.
10: So I think the morale overall is good. You know, it's interesting because we are a trauma center, maybe, or just because the nature of medicine in the U.S., we're used to sort of this, we'll go get them. We're going to take care of everything we can. Um, and And so people you know one of our, our our chair of rehab actually sent out an email today reminding us to kind of notice if people are skipping meals, notice that they 're not drinking enough fluid, notice if they 're burning out notice, you know because this is not a sprint it 's going to be at least a mid level race if not a marathon um, and so you know overall, very good there are definitely little incidents as moments you know you have Uh, the other day we had, I think, six people in our trauma bay that normally holds two. And the nurse came in and said, I need to get this patient intubated. And the doctor's standing there saying, where are you going to put this patient? Mm. And she goes, well, you have to take care of him. And he's like, well, you have to let me out of the door because there's a stretcher in the door. And it's sort of, you know, so you could see a little bit of the flare of, you know, short fuses. Well, not even short fuses, but fuses that have been spent And I've been spending 12 hours doing this kind of stuff. So, I mean, people are generally very encouraging and supportive of one another. Um, there has been a lot of, of collegial help in terms of the PPE sharing of, you know, getting people fresh ones. Um, they, they, you know, it's human nature, you know, when this first broke, all of a sudden boxes started disappearing, you know, and I'm sure they're sitting in people's homes, hopefully being used when they go out. Um, there was a great uh, <clears throat> Instagram thing about, you know, I save you, you save me, everybody wear your mask, you know, kind of yeah. thing. And, yeah. and so people are really in, encouraged to do that. But that said, it's human nature. I guess some people probably walked off with of boxes. So they quickly sequestered those and then they're distributing them. Um, mm-hmm. We do have enough right now, but, you know, normally we would use a mask a gown, gloves, go in the room. We'd finish. We'd take it off the proper way. You throw it in the garbage. You're done. If you have to go back because you needed to listen to the lungs again, you'd put another set on. Use them. Throw them away. Those days are definitely gone. So mm-hmm. I, I have, for instance, I have um, th- one of those N95 that I just mm-hmm. actually got. It took uh, a week or
0: so to get, and I use this underneath my mask. So, so hold on. So you're a frontline surgeon in New York city in one of the hardest hit hospitals in the world right now. And it took them a week to get you a mask. Yeah. The N95. How do you feel about that, man? Like, did you ever, could you ever imagine that happening? And and like, as a person, as a, as a citizen, as a father, like, how do you feel about that?
10: You know, I mean, I guess my first instinct was to say what I did was I wore three masks. You know, I made sure that one mask was very tight against me. I had a second set of shielding. I had a third. You know, the third one I discard. Um, so that's my first <clears throat> thought. You know, it's as you said, the the idea of support and the strategy behind this. You know, I mean, it it does bring back the days of Storm Sandy when they were talking about building a wall and they needed a wall that was fifty feet high, and instead they got a wall that's twelve feet high. And what <laughs> good does that do? You know, and it's like. People, I think people couldn't imagine it. And I I think it seems like it's human nature. You know, it happened in China and people, they suppressed it. They arrested the the doctor who reported it for two days, uh, who sadly, at least reportedly wound up dying from COVID, even though he's an ophthalmologist. But and and um, here, too, I think people just couldn't imagine that it's and I think people really haven't yet pictured the worst. Mm. I know there was a, a piece about a, a guy from Harvard who had, in January, kind of painted this doomsday picture. And, and then even uh, Northwestern Med School, where I went to med school, had a special on it. And they talked about the reason they want to flatten the curve is not because they want, I mean, they do, of course, want fewer people to be sick. But it's more that they want people to get sick over the course of time so that they're not going to do what's happening now, which is flood the hospital's. To massive overcapacity, you know. I think uh, Governor Cuomo was great when he asked for double the beds, mm-hmm. because I think if every hospital can double their beds, and, I, and Brookdale is very actively working on that, then I think that we, you know, won't won't spill out too many places into the street like you saw in in Wuhan, China, and um, and and but I but I think that, you know, as you said from the administration down, getting rid of the Person who was heading the pandemics, I guess, in 2018, was a colossal. You know, I mean, I don't swear, but you know what? I, you yeah. Know what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, and those those are the kind of people. Like, I'm I'm not directly in the front line, and I'm a support person. I'm not the logistics guy who would have said, "Hey, you know, we're going to need 40,000 ventilators. We're going to need double the capacity of the beds." And I know there's a lot of physicians who, who do this, who know this and who could have looked at this and said, you know, look, this is going to happen. You know,
0: yeah.
10: it's frustrating when you hear that, um, you know, Trump on one day and maybe he's doing it for the optics of the economy to say, oh, we're going to get people back to church because it wouldn't Easter be great. You know, and you look at what's happened in every other city that where this has been hitting and where it's hitting here and like, what planet do you live on? Mm. You know, yeah. that, that does nobody any good because then people think. They don't really really appreciate how serious
0: how dangerous this is so i want to i want to build on that in a second paul but you know when i think about this decision to get rid of the the key folks who would respond from a policy standpoint is a catastrophic decision. It, it, it's almost like I think about the Iraq War when they disbanded the Baathists and they sent you know hundreds of thousands of guys with guns out in the streets with no jobs. Right. That's similarly what I feel like is happening there. And then in Florida, where Governor DeSantis is refusing to shut down the state, and everybody's saying it should it should be shut down. The world is shutting down, but Florida wants to keep the beaches open, and and could be seeing a massive tidal wave coming. If you you could talk you're a frontline guy you're seeing people die nightly daily uh if you could send a message to someone like governor desantis in florida or uh someone in one of these states that hasn't shut down yet you got you know two minutes with the governor what do you want them to know i think they need to just come to the emergency room for two minutes take
10: a look at that cnn put a good piece on from brookdale actually but take, take a look in real life at what's happening or Elmhurst hospital or some of the other, I know Cornell, a lot, every hospital, and this is happening at small and big hospitals. It's massive. It's, it's truly unimaginable. You had mentioned something the other day about, you know, um, ch- raising children, being in combat, which I've never thankfully been in. Um, and I don't know this, you, you couldn't imagine it. You really can't until you're there. And, and, you know, it's not going to matter if they don't do it. It's they're they're wishing it to be better is not going to make it better. Mm. What, what they're doing is they're giving themselves and New York, I think, tr- has tried. But because it's so tight quartered and and probably because people didn't really appreciate it. And maybe we didn't even know exactly how much should we wear the masks? Do we have to if we're six feet away? Does it matter? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. I think there's things about the virus we don't understand as well in the way that, you know, some people we had a patient come in. Walked in, you know, short of breath, but walked in. Elderly. Twelve hours later, he was in the morgue, you know, dead. It it's it's like you can't believe it, and you know, people believed it when they saw Ebola. And I think if you can get them to think of Ebola like this, for some people, and it's a small percentage, thankfully, but even one percent of you know, I don't know how many people live in Florida, but one percent of that is a lot of people Mm. and a lot of loved ones to lose that don't have to be lost. You know, I do think it doesn't give science a chance to catch up. I think, I know there's a lot of work going on vaccines. There's different types of drugs. There's some discussion about, and I'm not going to give the names of drugs because then people will buy them off the shelves, (laughs) giving us physicians. Um, But, you know, if you treat the, the, um, the illness very early, you may have a different, you may turn the curve and have a Totally different prognosis than if that you catch them much later on. But and there's a lot of things that that can be done. It's, I know it's a sacrifice, I know it's economic sacrifice and it affects people's lives, but compared to actually losing lives, you know, there's no question in my mind. Mm. And I think, you know, listen to Cuomo, listen, or come in, come in for just two minutes to the emergency room and look at what's happening. It's you, you you honestly can't imagine it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's stretcher upon stretcher. Think about they six feet, forget it. You can't get six inches of separation. You know, mm-hmm. there's just room and the, and the people are, are literally dying. A lot of them are, or they're going to be very sick.
0: You know? no. The, the um, you know, hope is not a course of action is, is what we used to say in the army all the time. And, and, you know, I had this insight uh, the other night when I was doing the live show where I said, you know, for a long time, I've said that there are two things in life. You only understand if you experience them, parenthood and combat. Right. Unless you have experience, unless you've been a parent, you think, you know, I thought I knew what it was like to be a parent until that first baby came out and everything went sideways and everything changed. And everybody told me it was going to be different. Uh, I remember General Petraeus told me once he was looking forward to me having kids because he said it was going to smooth out some of my edges. And and, (laughs) and I was like, what is he talking about? But he was a hundred percent right. And, and similarly combat, you can, you think, you know, you watch it on TV, you read all the books, but until it's, it's your ass in, in the line of fire, you don't understand. I am now adding experiencing a pandemic to that unless yeah. you've experienced a pandemic unless you felt the threat you don't get it and we never could have imagined all of the different elements of this um, that are that are bearing down upon us and so as we think about you paul right and I think about you as my friend right and and our wives are friends you know we live in the same community um can you talk about your your wife sent me a, a text the other day and said you were I think in the ER operating, on uh is it correct do we say uh do you say covid-19 positive? Does yeah. I feel like I feel like it's at the point now where it was like when aids we said someone has hiv or they have aids it was this language thing that was kind of used interchangeably. So we say they are covid-19 positive is that the right way to say it? That's for sure. I mean you can also say corona coronavirus there's a there's there's
10: many many coronaviruses. This one just Caught the name because it, of the the naming like the SARS one the MERS, the swine flu, even the Spanish flu was considered a coronavirus you know, and back in the days when when I was a kid, I remember them saying, you know we can get a man on the moon, but we can't uh, uh, cure the common cold,
0: and we're still there unfortunately because it's so so, so, so for, so for you anyway. so for you as my friend, not dr Paul B Hazer but Paul, the guy I know, and we have drinks together and we hang out, right? Um, can you describe what it's like, what goes through your head when you are operating on a patient who's COVID-19? So it's it's very scary. I mean,
10: the very first thing, because it's an unseen enemy, you know, you can't see these little microscopic pellets. I mean, this is a very small strand of RNA. You know, it's so tiny. And and you you, you feel like you just don't know, like... I mean, maybe going back to combat thing, it's like you're walking through a field and there, there may be a mine there somewhere, or there may be a hundred mines and you have no idea and you have no minesweeper and you have no way of knowing whether or not that's going to be the thing. And it goes through my head that, am I going to bring this back to my family? I'm going to bring this back to the building, you know, because it's six and a half days asymptomatic. You don't know, you know, so take all the precautions and stuff, but there's in the back of your mind, you know, it's definitely there and Maybe not even in the back of your mind, in the front of your mind. You're thinking like, I gotta do this right. You know, I had the residents go out of the room. I'm like, I'll do this myself. You know, you don't need to learn how to do one more of these procedures. We do lots of surgery at Brookdale. They get great experience, great training. I, I train there too, by the way. <laughs> so I can say that I give myself a, a pat on the shoulders. But you know, you get great training, lots of cases and stuff, and 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 I'm tell them, you know, get out of the room. I think I want to do this as efficiently as effectively as possible and with minimum you know protection of everything protect protect but at the same time you just don't know you know and walking through the emergency room even scarier because you just think like it's got to be there it's got to be all over you know so i do hope i've rested enough i'm taking my extra vitamin c drinking my fluids and stuff like that you know as a as a human being i think you know i i don't want myself or my coworkers my colleagues my friends to to have to go through this or experience it,
0: mm. so. I mean the the heroism of what you are demonstrating is so profound to me, um, and that's a good point to take a drink. So you're taking a drink, I'm going to take a drink. <laughs> you the know, Good, good
10: no people people say heroism and i i say it's sort of just doing my job but that's you know?
0: heroism right that's what I. that's that's true heroism you know we talked to flo groberg in the last episode and he talked about you know people become heroes by not trying to be heroes by trying to do their job and do the right thing and have integrity and that's what you know you're demonstrating every single day you walk i mean for new yorkers every time we walk outside It feels like you're going outside the wire in in a combat zone. You're leaving the forward operating base and there's risk when you go outside. I mean, I think about how many thousands of people walk past the corner outside our building in a given day, right? On a normal day. But you guys are going deeper and deeper into enemy territory. I mean, you are behind enemy lines. You are outnumbered. You are overwhelmed. You are exhausted. So, I mean, the heroism is is really, really profound. And there's so many glimmers of it. And that's part of why I wanted to talk to you, Paul, because I know you bring hope to people, to hear from an actual frontline person and how humble you are. The humility that you have, I think, is, is is very important, but you're also a human. You have, you know, you have emotions. So I wanna give you an opportunity to answer the question that I ask of all of our inspiring important guests on Angry Americans. Uh, Dr. Paul Hazer, what makes you angry?
10: Yeah, what makes me angry is the 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 really the failure of leadership of getting rid of a pandemic chair or chief or however you want to label that person. And to be completely caught off guard. And then to To add to that, the, you know, the kind of, and I guess it's human nature, but the hopeful, oh, this is nothing, it's just a flu, it's just, rather than heeding the warnings to say, we have really, truly unimaginable, but imagine the worst case, and then multiply it times 10. You know, imagine the mass casualty, imagine a 9-11 with 3,000 victims that all lived, you know, what that would have done to the city. And then multiply that times 10, you know, because and or times 20 or 30 and to not have had that in in mind and have the backup style, you know, plans and stuff like that. You know, I think it makes me angry that people want to try to sort of uh, give this false hope. As you said, hope isn't just, a, a, you know, it's, it's a, plan, you know, a plan of action. It's not, by itself, it's not a plan of action. You know? So it's like hoping that it'll be better, hoping you know, when you have the Department of Veterans Affairs who should be the backup, who should have come in saying, not like, oh, we're ready, but they should have come in and contacted every hospital in New York and said, here's where our supplies are, this is what we're missing, and made those announcements right in January or February you know, or the beginning of March, you know, um, not now here we, we are April 1st and, and, and they're, they're, they're playing catch up as well. And they didn't do their jobs, you know, mm. cause that is, and they got rid of the people who could have done the jobs or given them the advice properly. So that makes me angry.
0: You have not been tested. You are That's on correct. the front line and, and you have not been tested. Why have you not been tested? <laughs> You know, I, I would almost add that as one of the
10: other things that makes me angry. I think it's it's ridiculous that every American should be tested and then retested for the false negative and false positives. You know, if you can manufacture uh, ventilators and masks and the other PPE plastics and stuff like that, they should be mass producing this on a massive scale. The The, the main reason I haven't been tested is they don't have enough tests to go around. We're having to send our residents home who develop fevers and who are concerned of having COVID-19 without getting them tested. just presuming you you must have the, the virus and we'll track the course of it. Now, Brookdale did just get the first, they're the first hospital in New York City to get the FDA approved version and they've ramped the testing up substantially. But it still isn't at the point where they can test the ER doctors every day and say, hey, do you think you've caught this or not? Because, you know, and and I think that given the fact that this latency is six and a half, seven days before people, they've been infected, they're actively infected. We know that certainly by day four or five, they're giving it to other in the environment. You know, they may not be coughing, so it may not be a massive bolus, but it's going to be there. We all touch our nose and hands by mistake. You know, you're going home to your kids. I think that it's, it's it's really terrible that that hasn't happened.
0: So if there was ever an issue that underscored our line, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. If you're not angry about the fact that Paul and other frontline surgeons in the ER at the worst hit hospital in maybe the world doesn't have a test, you haven't been tested because there aren't enough tests for you. So that means that you know NBA players have been tested, probably thousands of professional athletes at this point have been tested who are not mission essential right now. Like LeBron James is not mission essential right now to the survival of, of, of our of our nation and our world. But you are and you haven't been tested because they don't have enough tests for you and the other frontline professionals in your hospital. That's correct. And it,
10: and it should make everyone angry. And I'm, I'm hopeful that people will, uh, along with helping send masks and do things like that, will really work. I'm very happy Abbott uh, just was awarded the contract. And I mean, you know, to show what good spirit Roche Laboratories sent Abbott a congratulations tweet or, you know, uh, press release saying we're, we're, you know, we wanted the, we wanted the contract, but at least you got it. I think all of them should have it and all of them should be making it. I think it would make a yeah. big
0: difference. I remember after nine eleven, um, after the first time I left ground zero, which ironically for me and you, powerfully for me and you, is a couple blocks away from where we're talking right now. Just we lost, you know, 3,000 or so people on 9-11, you know, I think we'll probably lose that many in New York City, I don't know, within the next week, we'll probably hit the same number, right? Yeah. Um, but I remember the first time I left downtown and I crossed 14th Street and I went north, um, I was going past um, St. Vincent's Hospital, which is now closed in the West Village. And I remember walking past the hospital when I was going back and forth in those first couple of days, and I saw all the stretchers outside. So many stretchers, the entire city, every hospital had these stretchers lined up. And then what we later found out is they never used them because everybody either died inside or walked out. There wasn't a lot of middle ground, right? There weren't huge right. numbers of, of 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 cashbacks coming out of ground zero during that time. So now we have this. Uh, this reverse situation where we don't have enough resources. People are overwhelmed. And I want to ask you, if you can, to talk about the role of the VA. I've talked about it a lot on this show and the Department of Defense. You, I want to talk in a minute about your experience at Landstuhl, because I think that's very powerful and heroic and needed. You're a guy who continues to answer the call. So, you know, it's in your... Service is not uh, an event. It's kind of a lifestyle, especially for people like you that continue to serve. But can you talk about... Um, I have said that the VA can be um, the reinforcements. It can be the cavalry because it has the fourth mission to provide resources in the event of an emergency, but it can also be a place that has mass Problems. And we saw that just this week in Holyoke, Massachusetts, 13 veterans died in one uh, soldier's home, not run by the federal VA state run. But this is a very, very sharp double edged sword where if, if led properly and activated properly, the VA can be, you know, the cavalry. And if 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 they're slow, if they're behind, they could be. Uh, a mass weak point and and a ca- mass casualty area, right? So from where you sit, can you talk about uh, how you view the VA's response so far and what you what you see the potential for them to do is? so I mean, for us as a hospital, we've had no response
10: from them. They haven't reached out as far as I know now i'm I'm again a, you know in the in the trenches i'm not I'm not in the administration. Um, and, and if they have, I apologize for saying that, but uh, as far as I I've, I've felt it, as far as we felt it, no, you know, it's kind of like, and and there is this wonder, not just by myself, but other people like, do they have things and they're just holding back? Are they the people that have the boxes of masks in their back, you know, shelf or whatever that are sitting around waiting? And when's the time to mobilize? And to me, I, I feel like they have not done their fourth, you know, directive to to really mobilize and help people. Um, on a much broader scale logistically to say, here's where we need people, here's where we don't. You know, um, and it's not directly the VA, but the, the Mercy, I guess our comfort flew out, you know, is, uh, is now docked off of uh, Manhattan, just up the road from us. And people were saying, well, you know, those are the people you could send to the Mercy or to the Comfort. And I'm like, what's their number? You know, we don't have <laughs> any of that information.
0: So, so right now, you don't know how if you and you're a trauma guy right and and so uh the way the comfort's supposed to be set up as i understand it they're going to take the overflow so the gunshot wound victim that would normally go to your hospital is maybe now going to go there might be a great example right because they're a combat right. hospital so a gunshot wound that would normally go to your hospital is supposed to go to the comfort up on the west side highway just uh past the intrepid if folks are thinking about geographically where it is it's on the west side just a little bit past midtown uh, past where we normally record the show at the classic car club only by a couple blocks yeah but you don't know how to send them there. And right. you're the guy who should be sending them there.
10: Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And, and you know, when I was in Haiti, um, I think it was the Mercy, that's why I keep saying that, was docked out, off there. But we had Army personnel and we did send people directly there. And I got on the phone and I spoke to one of the, you know, captains, uh, uh, the uh, um, military um, physicians. And I said, you know, I have this patient with head trauma, arm injury, etc. And they, they'd arrange for a transport and a CAT scan, etc. And we had a colleague collegial conversation. And, and it, again, it could be the EMT people know that. Um, and they just, or one of them didn't, or they didn't have the space. Who knows? Uh, but, but we have not been given any of that kind of information. No. Nor has the VA said to us, hey, we're going to open up, you know, tents out, you know, in Brooklyn in the old air, airfield out there you know they could they could do that too but they have not done any of
0: that i I feel like there's also you know number one when we talked about morale paul um the if you heard the va secretary standing up saying surgeons we're coming we're sending resources right it's a press conference if they're up there with the president the president was saying that that alone would be a boost to morale, right? To know that there is some kind of support coming. And at the same time, you have this slow, um, discombobulated response on behalf of the federal government, on behalf of the military, but on a very basic level. And I'm not, again, I there's the old saying in the military, strategy is for amateurs and logistics is for experts. I know how important logistics is, right? Because I could have a great strategy, but if I don't have enough ammunition, it doesn't mean shit. Right. So right now, when I look at it, I see the comfort, with a thousand beds, I see a makeshift hospital going up in Central Park. I see now another hospital in uh, at this tennis center, the U.S. Open Center in Queens. You see Detroit, you see Boston, you see others starting to spin up. But when I look at the numbers, I see a thousand beds on, on, on the comfort. It feels like we're spitting in the ocean. It feels like a tidal wave is coming, and I think people have this false sense of hope because there's the symbolism of the comfort that came right by our windows on the other side of where you're sitting now. It tugged up through the Hudson, and people cheered for it, but it's 1,000 beds, and we need 10,000 beds. So how off are we right now, so, in your view? You know, if you look at New York's um,
10: Department of Health mentioned that we need 40,000 ventilators. We're going to need 40,000 ventilators in New York. And we have around 4,000, something like that. Um, and with a, apparently, you know, another 700 here and we got seven at our hospital. And, and you know, thankfully we have not had to triage. We're, we're at that point. But I, I think that if we were able to mobilize every hospital, double their capacity and take advantage of these things, that we might, you know, not overflow too much, overspill and have people that literally cannot get into the hospital. But as you said, logistics is, is key to that. And coordination of that needs to be not just on an upper level, but also trick, you know, sent directly down to the physicians in the ER, to the physicians in the intensive care unit to say, here's a resource. When you have this, call this person. And you're not calling up three different or four different hospitals to say, where do I do this? You know, When you call 911 and you ask to be picked up, um, they don't start calling ambulances and say, "Oh, can you? Are you free? Can you do this? Uh, do you have this bed f- open?" You know, they have a whole setup in mind, and EMTs have been excellent. I mean, those guys, I, I really, they're coming into the houses, which are, you know, it's, it's in a sense infested with with this virus, and uh, really putting themselves in the line, and and um, but they they have that coordinated well, and the hospitals need to have the same thing, and they don't have that yet.
0: Mm. So, um, you know, I want to give people an insight into the kind of work specifically you've done. And, and you sent me an article about your time at Landstuhl. And I wanted you to talk about that because I think two, two parts of this. Number one, I want you to talk about that from a trauma standpoint. And you performed a first ever procedure of its kind when you were at Landstuhl uh, on a sniper and you've saved lives. You've, you've helped people as best you could and you've been on those front lines. But I also think about um, some of the less glamorous parts of trauma or less glamorous parts of what's coming and this is a really big reach but the other day uh i may have told you the story my wife slammed my finger in the dishwasher and for a second i thought my finger was cut off and immediately my brain went through okay can i do this myself Right? Like, I know I'm first aid trained. I know how to do combat medic basics. Like, I could probably deal with, you know, if I need to deal with this wound. And, uh, you know, a week before I had a a dental emergency, right? So, what happens to all of those kinds of things? And in particular, when I see the comfort rolling up and I see this Parkinson's, I'm thinking that's where babies are going to be born. Like, they're going to, you know, all these people who are pregnant who thought they were going to be given birth in like this, you know, Bougie luxury bed in in Sinai. Maybe they're going to be given birth on on a navy ship. So maybe on on the, on the first case, Paul, can you talk about the types of trauma and where they are likely to go and what's likely to happen? Because that's the long tail of this. I don't think people are understanding. Right? They're thinking, okay. I'm worried about COVID, but they don't realize if you fall off a ladder or you get in a car accident or you break your leg or your kid smashes his head open and needs stitches like has happened. And I've called you and said, Hey man, you know, you might need to come down and stitch up my kid. Um, can you talk about that more immediate trauma that is a part of living in a modern world uh, and how we're prepared to care for it? And then if you can also go, go back to Landstuhl and tell us about what you did there. So, um, for, in terms of the daily traumas that we have, um,
10: and and the daily acute appendicitis, or you said childbirth or things like that, yeah, we are very hopeful that um, the comfort will will be a comfort and that we'll provide that um, service for those people. Um, and and um, uh, we we need to get the connections, the logistics to be able to send our patients there. Right now, what a lot of physicians at Brookdale are doing is. We're, we'll we have sort of a an office space in the back um, where where we can get people through without having to go right through the emergency room or even through the main hospital. They can come in through the the parking lot kind of area there, and it's fairly secured. And we're you know talking about doing those good old fashioned where we would maybe in the past have admitted a patient with a cold leg and treated them, done a bypass, and then got them uh, to convalescence, et cetera. And we're looking at how can we temporize this? Can we do this in 12 hours? Can we bring them directly from our office up to the operating room, take care of them, convalesce them in recovery, and then send them home with, you know, close follow-up support. I mean, we do at least have the telemedicine has r- ramped up very quickly. And so t- even today I talked to people online and they can call up and I can see them through Skype or through other stuff. Uh, uh, we have the HIPAA compliant things as well, uh, that we can do. So, so we're trying our best, but there's going to be a lot more sheltering in place in terms of that and treatment in place. So, uh, and it's, some of it has to do with the physicians then advocating for the, the patients that so you call your doctor and say, Hey, you know, my, my fingers, you know, hanging by a thread, what should I do? Mm-hmm. And then he's going to be talking to somebody and say, well, could we get him in, you know, to the office and, and I'll I'll bring over some equipment and we'll sew it up best we can and if the nerve's injured we'll replace it in six six weeks like we normally would, but you know some of the acute things and childbirth I think there's going to be a lot more home births, so yeah. I'm hoping that they're mobilizing midwives and um and even some of the obstetricians to be able to go into the homes and do it the old fashioned way but of course that's
0: that's nothing you would imagine in you know modern day society in New yeah. York City. But that's what I'm trying to do is is forecast for what's to come and especially pull it out for people who, you know, there's still some folks who are saying, oh, you know, New York is unique. It's not going to happen here in Kansas City or in Tulsa or in, you know, Portland, Oregon, wherever they are, or in rural areas, right? And now I don't think people are understanding uh, the kind of traffic jam of our healthcare system that that can can happen, um, but let's shift over to your time in Landstuhl. For folks who don't know, uh, Landstuhl is is you know a front line. A little, actually maybe not front line, second line, right? If you're Medevac out of a combat zone, if you're out of Afghanistan or Iraq, you come to Landstuhl, where a lot of uh, lives are saved and lives are lost. Um, can you talk about what that environment was like? Um, you know, the, the specific case that you sent me that I think is very important in understanding your experience and your service um, and, you know, what that taught you that prepares you for this moment now. So that was interesting. I mean, I, I, I majored in German in college. And so <laughs> they
10: had this um, program that allowed you to go over to Landstuhl Germany for two weeks as a volunteer and serve as a vascular surgeon. They didn't have any full-time vascular surgeons at Langstuhl, which is a tertiary care center, you know, and and they had a, them. There were front lines um, really doing some heroic work, and they got people back to Langstuhl. So we, the Society for Vascular Surgery, along with the Red Cross and the Society for Trauma, organized this whole uh, effort. Every two weeks, people would come back, and I I tried to go at least every year, uh, every eighteen months, while the program was still active. Um, And, and they, they've gotten better where they didn't need us as much to tell you the truth. So, which was good, but, uh, it taught, it taught me a lot actually for, um, for being prepared for this moment, because one of the things that struck me, you know, when I first got there was the guy said, look, you're like the firefighter Hmm. and the best case scenario is you sit in your firehouse and read journals and hang out and meet people. And drink some German beer and never get called in. And in some ways, like for all of us, our best case scenario is we sit at home, you know, watch Netflix and, you know, <laughs> Disney plus, uh, for us with kids. And, uh, and, um, and we never have any fevers. We don't have any of these modern day traumas or, uh, or anything else that goes on and, and we get through this and that's really the best case scenario. And, I, and that's part of what actually Longstuhl did teach me, but It was also a great experience because we would have, you know, a bus come in and there were 25 injured soldiers, you know, and all I I, I will say this. The the staff there was amazing. They they were the best intensive care unit I've ever worked at. They saved people that nowhere else would be saved. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just it was just remarkable. And they were really, really injured, as you as you know, you know, uh, many of them with lost limbs. You know, but it was, you know, and then it gets to where you're trying to save one finger or you're trying to say, you know, and and that experience was, um, you know, for me, I, I felt like blessed because I got a chance to do, be there and do that and help out. We had one case, the one that you referenced before, where a sniper had been, um, I think it was actually in Africa. So they, they served there as well. He had gotten a, a shrapnel that had gone through his aorta, main blood vessel running, literally missed his heart by a quarter of an inch and went right through the main artery there and was lodged just outside of it. And you could see the little dings on either side where this, you know, ticking time bomb was waiting to explode. And, um, in general, you know, um, this kind of case would have been done. You'd open up, make a very long incision along the chest and then get in there and you'd repair the aorta, ideally in a place that had open heart uh, preparations and such. But he wasn't, uh, a, a, nobody would be a good candidate to send overseas where they had open heart. So we had done a lot of um, uh, fixing of the ar- arteries from inside, mostly for aneurysms, aneurysm, so a ballooning of the artery, but occasionally also for these intense like motor vehicle uh, Lady Diana injuries that where you, the artery actually shears off and then, uh, ruptures. And, um, but they had not done any in tool yet. So it wasn't the first ever of this kind of case, but it was the first ever for a military, uh, hospital. And I was able to contact the people from, uh, uh, the, the, uh, stent company and they contacted the people in Germany. We actually had sent the soldier over to the German hospital uh, where they were like, well, he's going to need open surgery, and that would have put him out of all of his training, I and mean, he basically would have retired with a medical retirement. Hmm. And uh, you know, I said, well, we could reline the artery with this covered stent uh, through a very small incision. It was like maybe less than the width of your of your driver's license, um, and slide up and reline the artery and protect him so he could get back to his normal work, you know, in a few days. And, uh, and it was really great. You know, it was, uh, it was a great to be able to give him that opportunity. And then, you know, he was back, back to work. I mean, I think we gave him a couple of weeks for his groin incision to heal up fully. And then he was back on the job. So,
0: great. so he had a piece of shrapnel next to his heart. And then a couple of weeks later, he's back in the field. Yeah. That's, that's exceptional, man. That's exceptional. And thank yeah. you for, for sharing that. Um, I want to ask you, Paul, um to to kind of put your doctor Oz hat on, which I'm reluctant to do with any doctor or any medical professional that I know, but for folks right now uh, that are listening to the show, um what do you feel they need to know to protect themselves um number one and and their families and and what do you hope they will do right now to help? I talked to your wife. A little bit about how she's like a military family now. You know, you all are, are on the front lines and, and, you know, you volunteered and they got drafted. But we're all, you know, at war now. Kind of like, you know, the, the blitz in, in, in Europe after World War II. We all feel connected. But what do, you, what, what do you want people to do personally for their health to protect themselves against COVID-19? And what can they do to support frontline fighters like you?
10: So I think personally is staying healthy. Which, which isn't just social distancing, washing before and after um, for the good 20 seconds or getting that, you know, if you can find it, the, the uh, alcohol-based uh, rubs to, uh, to use on your hands and make sure that you're keeping clean, keeping distance. I do think that there's been an initiative in a few countries uh, to, to really have people wear masks all the time when they're out. Uh, even recognizing, like, Like you and I, you know, I, we could have been talking to each other face to face, you know, but I I do think, unfortunately, and I I feel that way too, you know, like, I don't know if I have it, you know, I never know if I have it and I have to act like I have it. And so I do not want you to get it and God forbid, or your kids or your wife, you know, and so I just wear my mask, you know, I'm out about, I think as well, getting proper sleep doing some exercises, some in-home calisthenics, that kind of stuff, keeping your mind, you know, sharp in terms of that, recognizing it isn't forever, but it may be a couple of months. If you look at the Wuhan model, if you look at the others, it's really, it's not a couple of weeks. uh, It's not a few days. It's probably going to be a couple of months that we have to really every day maintain this exercise. Not, you can't just one time say, ah, forget it. I'm going to go out, you know, it, I don't matter, you know, I know these people, they've been healthy, I'm healthy, you know, you you just can't let your guard down in terms of that. I do think that people who get sick should use the old, I mean, it is a cold, and for the vast majority of people, it's just a cold, you know. So I always tell my kids, saltwater gargle, steam up, um, you know, take the Tylenol, question of whether you should take Motrin or not, but you take the Tylenol, you know, you can take the antihistamines, um and vitamin C is probably not going to hurt you it may even help good nutrition well balanced diet that kind of stuff is very important mm-hmm. um I, you know we haven't yet figured out why some people get really sick even old people uh who you know we say well they're at greater risk but they had a guy 100 years old discharged from Wuhan one of the hospitals in Wuhan after about 3 weeks Hundred years old. He had Alzheimer's and he had dementia, he had uh, hypertension and a few other things. And then just the other day, a twelve-year-old girl from Belgium died. You know, terrible tragedy and stuff like that. And so I think people have to keep that in mind. Like I don't want to be the person. You know, if you have a choice of you know, playing Russian roulette, why would you do it? You know, mm-hmm. don't even don't even pick up the gun. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of personally. Um taking, taking responsibility for that and supporting each other in terms of that, I think it's, it's been helpful uh, in terms of that. Um, you asked me a second part of the question. In the
0: second part of the question, and I want folks to understand, too, if you're listening, if, you, if you're listening, you can watch this video at angryamericans.us. But if you're listening, Paul's actually got a mask around his neck right now. And uh, I mean, on a very basic level, I want to ask you, you know, when you're around your kids now, do you wear the mask just to be safe? I mean, in in the family, like, what do you do? And the second part of the question was, what can people do to support you? Now, I think your, your first answer is part is probably the best way they can support you, right? Like support the fight by doing what you need to do every single day and taking care of yourself. But number one, you know, you're wearing them, you got a mask right now and you're pretty much probably wearing it all the time. And then, you know, secondly, what do you think folks can do to support the fight? Yeah. So, um, I have this whole decontamination process that I go through.
10: So for instance, the scrubs I'm wearing right now, cause I'm working remote from home,
0: yeah.
10: um, are not the scrubs that I use at the hospital. So I go into the hospital. I, I have a se- separate white coat, separate scrubs. I get in there. I change that uh, the mask that I use to walk to and from the hospital is not the same. Um, and, um, as the mask I use in the hospital and, um, And so I sort of have, and we've converted one of our bathrooms into my decontamination room. So the kids don't go in there. I come home, I strip down, I put on a fresh set of clothes, um, all, and I, I have the alcohol wipes and the Purell type of stuff. And I do that. I do this special thing with my nose. So I, I'm, I'm definitely taking all those precautions as much as I can. I've been doing that since, since this all started and since we were told to. I th- I think, and so I don't keep my mask on around my kids at home and stuff like that. Cause there's too much chance that we'd have the exposure and mutual exposure. And they're also at very low risk, even if they get that, that they would give it to me. So, um, that I, if they were to get it, uh, that it would be bad. Um, in terms of what people can do to help you mentioned it. I mean, you know, one of the doctors from Illinois mentioned, you know, it's hard to feel like you're a hero when you're sitting at home on your couch watching Netflix. But if people can remember that, you know, like I don't feel like a hero. And you don't feel like hero, but you are. And everybody and your message and what you're doing is really important too, to get that message out to people. That it's you know, and they should they should clap for themselves and say, hey, Mm -hmm. we're doing our part, you know. And they really are doing their part, you know. People that do that, people who say to the governor DeSantis and other people, hey, you know, we're going to do our part for humanity because this is a global thing. It's not a party, you know. It's not not a it's not a country it's It's global it's everywhere, and it doesn't discriminate based on anything you know it's certainly people that are are predisposed to already or who are already sick could have some some worsening complications from it mm-hmm. and and like I said, most of the thankfully the people and I think also people maintaining a sense of hope that they're going to help um, the by flattening this curve that they'll give medicine science a chance to you know, develop a, a vaccine that actually works. To work out different drug protocols that seem to help, and to, to get these these things manufactured and stuff like that. So I think going online and supporting whether you support research and science, you know, and, and you give them something for that. You know, it's not just masks and PPEs. It's yeah. it's all of that, and even supporting you know and, and giving cheers to the guys that are picking up the trash, you know, yeah. and doing all that, because they're on the front line as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, man. So uh, because this is angry Americans and you are a fan of the show and you've been a great supporter of the show, my thanks to you for that. Um, uh, you gave me great notes on the show and you gave me feedbacks on the episode and, I, and and everybody needs a moment of, of levity, levity, but also a perspective on our guests. So I want to ask you the question that I do ask of all of our guests, Dr. Paul Hazer, what was your first car? I've been
10: almost looking you know, it's funny because I never I, I tell you this, I never imagined being on your show. I, I and I've loved it from the from the time I found out about it. And I've I've binged listened and re-listened to several of the episodes and stuff. But I've always thought, Oh, if I was ever on this show, I have such a great answer. It's it's nothing close to, you know, getting a car from from the Shah or you know, anything like that. But we had this, our, my very first car I had for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and it wasn't because of a crash, <laughs> at least. But we had this old, it was a, you remember the old checkered limousines, the yellow, yeah. yellow caps? Well, my parents, because I'm one of five kids, so we had a big family growing up in Chicago, uh, had gotten, and that's where they were made, by the way, in Chicago, they had gotten a checkered limousine, but it was black. So it was like a stretch. Version. Not super stretch, but it was longer, and it was this old car. By the time I was driving, it had you know well over two hundred thousand miles, and I drove it to school. I was so excited with my dad. You know, here I am, 15, sixteen years old, and the steering wheel is like basically like I'm I'm like on the river, you know, steaming there because it's, it's it's like delinked from the drive shaft somehow. <laughs> so so. I got it to the school. My dad's like, you're not driving this car. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, but it's my car. And so I didn't have my own car. Then until I got to med school, when I bought my very first car that I bought was a light green rabbit. Wow. (laughs) Rabbit. So, and I drove that car into the ground. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is a great answer, man. That is that is that is a fascinating insight into your into your background. Well, you're also an exceptionally positive guy. You bring great energy to everybody around you. You know that the positivity is a is a key part of this show, and I think it's gonna be more important now than ever. We've been trying to bring every episode since the, the war began. I don't know how else to talk about it yet, but since the war began, we've been trying to bring positivity. And you know, your wife is incredibly inspirational. Like she 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 was so great when we had our 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 last baby. She's always picking people up in the, in the neighborhood and she would send food to our house all the time. She's an awesome cook. So, but you have a great sense of positivity around your family. So I think this is really, really important, especially now, Dr. Paul Hazer, what makes you happy?
10: My family, you know, honestly, my wife, my kids, it's amazing to come home. You know, it's now we have a pause where I I get home and um, I have to get into the little uh, changing room, decontamination room. Before my uh, five-year-old will run up and jump into my arms, you know, and that—that's a moment that's amazing. And then my wife will be like, "What about me?" You know, <laughs> and, and, and of course my teenage kids are like, uh, "Hi." I, you know, <laughs> but I know that means everything to the, you know,
0: <laughs> so. Well, I want to ask you for one more because the family answer is a powerful one and it, and it's good. But what do you, what do you do when you're in this intense environment, whether it's in Landstuhl or now, you know, on the front lines in, in Brooklyn, uh, do you have anything to, like, is it, is it music or, or a walk or a scale? Like, how do you keep your mind right? So it,
10: one of the things that that I love doing is I actually sing. I, I like singing a lot. And um, my uh, daughter's uh, Gabby's um, uh, piano teacher has actually been on Broadway and starred in waitress and what like, what that is. And so she had a little thing to sort of support the actors. Cause I follow her where she did like a cameo thing. So now I'm, I'm doing this remote virtual learning to learn my part of the song uh, you matter to me. Um and, wow. um, and, my my old, I call my, my, um, uh, Canadian, uh, uncles or, or papas, these me, papa that I lived with, these two gay fellas are really outstanding artists <laughs> and, and pianists. He's a pianist and a vocal teacher and he's playing the piano part and he's going to teach me, I, you know, downloaded the, the words and, and such. And so he's teaching me that part. And then we're going to do kind of a combined virtual thing where we, we, Bring the whole song all together. So Desi's going to sing Sarah Bareilles's part, and uh, I'm going to sing the Dr. Pimenter's part or whatever. So. <laughs>
0: I love it man. I love it. Now 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 I'm already thinking of what, what gifts we can get you when this is all over to celebrate your <laughs> your, your your leadership. Well, you know the show I would normally uh end by by a giving of the gifts. I can't give you gifts right I I'm going to figure out a way to, you know, have them at the front desk and decontaminate them or whatever, right? Uh but uh I'll get you a a bottle of whiskey um that that I will find that will be suitable for your uh, experience and expertise. I'll get you some more Angry American gear if you don't have it already, but Easter is coming again. It's, it's This is actually, I believe, the one-year anniversary episode of our show, I think. It's either this week or next week, so we've now done a full year. Uh, I think 52 weeks j- we just hit, but we've always asked everybody, if you could choose a color of peeps and you had pink, blue, uh, or, or yellow, what would you pick, Paul? So... You know, I have five girls, right? So I
10: have to go with pink. <laughs> two stepdaughters, two older daughters from previous marriage, and Gabby. So, pink. There you go, man. Even there though I know it's not the OG, as Sarah <laughs> Jessica Parker
0: said. Uh, but well, uh, well, you are you are an OG now, man. You you are you are an incredible inspiration. Uh, you're an American hero. I'm honored to call you a friend and a neighbor and and to just know about what you're doing every day. I know that this episode is going to reach people around the country and around the world. And, you know, here in New York now and in other places around the world, seven o'clock, everybody's opening the windows and, and cheering. Uh, for you guys and for the gals and everyone out there on the front lines. So tonight, you know, we will be cheering for you at seven o'clock and we'll be cheering for you every other night at seven o'clock until this is all over and we have a great big party at the Classic Car Club uh, and, and you go to the front of the line, right? <laughs> you, you are going to be at the front of the line for the whiskey and for that big, gigantic 50-pound bottle of champagne that Rachel Maddow <laughs> sent me. Um, but I appreciate you taking so much time. Uh, away from the fight right now to be with us. And, and all that you're doing every day, know that you are appreciated, know that you are supported, know that we love you. And uh, we're just so grateful for all that you're doing right now, my friend.
10: Well, thank you, Paul. I mean, I, I can't give the thanks back enough in person, but, you know, uh, over the internet, I'll say that you you also are doing a great job by by getting this this word out and this message out. I think it's extremely valuable. So thanks back to you as well.
0: You got it, man. All right. Well, I need to let you go uh, sing or do something that's fun. Go back to work, actually. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And and, uh, you're in our prayers and thoughts. But thank you for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, uh, live from New York, the great and powerful Dr. Paul Hazer. Uh, Cheer for him, root for him, and know that he's out there leading the fight every day. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Paul. Sometimes you want to simplify without having to sacrifice performance, especially now in this world of coronavirus and our new normal. And Bravo Sierra engineers highly effective, non-toxic grooming products that stand the test of the most active lifestyles and the test of a pandemic. In fact, Bravo Sierra pioneered an unprecedented large-scale testing program with 1,000 U.S. military service members and their communities with a simple idea. If the products work for them, they can work for all of us, especially now when times are tough. Plus, Bravo Sierra gives back 5% of all sales to MWR programs. That's morale, welfare, and recreation for active duty service members, veterans, and their families. You can feel clean, you can look good, and smell great all day with products that are healthy, high quality, and affordable. Men's Health calls it a game-changing grooming line. And if you've heard this show before, you know it. It is a game-changing grooming line. I'm a massive fan of their products, and I'm very excited that they are a sponsor of this show, especially right now. Go to bravosierra.com backslash angry americans, And when you go there, you can check out the hygiene ready set. It's the only two products you need to get clean and ready to go. Whether you're going on a hike and you live in the woods or you're locked in your basement in Staten Island, there's a solid cleanser to wash your hands, face, body, and hair as frequently as needed. And then there's the antibacterial wipes, which are perfect when you have no access to water and you need a refresher. Just the extra thick body wipes. These things are awesome. The antibacterial wipes are especially helpful in times like this. Everybody needs a set, especially if you have no access to water or you just need a refresher. Again, it's bravosierra.com backslash angry Americans, And I'm very happy to have them as our biggest partner right now. Flo Groberg loves them. You heard that last week. And I'm sending a bunch of this stuff to Paul Hazer and his crew at the hospital. And right now, you can try the Bravo Sierra Starter Set for free. It's three of their best-selling products. It's the aluminum-free deodorant, the Hair and Body Wash Solid Cleanser Bar, and the Hair Grooming Cream, which I don't use, but I recommend. You only pay $6.95 for shipping, and you get all three of those products. It's a limited time. Just go to bravosierra.com backslash angry americans and if you buy anything else use the code angry and you'll get 15 percent off all orders the guys are hooking us up use the code angry 15 percent off all orders it's bravosierra.com code angry for 15 percent off grooming essentials that are essential in the pandemic field tested by members of the u.s military made in the usa and kicking ass just like this show Go to bravosierra.com backslash angryamericans right now and check them out. We are at war. Now, most folks get it. And most folks are following the doctor's orders. Dr. Fauci is leading this country right now more than Trump is. And Dr. Fauci is like our Patton, our Eisenhower. I'm sure by the end of all this, if he survives... He'll lead a ticker tape parade up the Canyon of Heroes. And maybe, he'll run for office himself. But long before we can cheer for him or vote for him, we have to listen to him and all the other doctors that are putting out life-saving advice as they always do, but on a level like we've never seen. Stakes is high, and they're looking out for all of us. And there's plenty of reason to be angry. But as Dr. Paul Hazer, I hope, showed you, there's also reason to be hopeful and reason to keep your calm. Because even more than the virus, even more than the stupid, the calm is contagious. And if you keep your calm and wash your hands and eat your vegetables, especially as a nation at war, there's a way to make an impact. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper.
1: Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every pod, I
0: offer a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. You know the deal. An action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And in this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration
1: like sweet morning dew, I took one look at you and it was plain to see you were my destiny.
0: The great Marvin Gaye was shot and killed by his father 36 years ago this week on April 1st, 1984, a day before his 45th birthday. It was a tragic loss, the loss of a brilliant artist, an artist who wrote about pain and who wrote about war. And we're at war today, and heroes like Dr. Paul Hazer are on the front lines for all of us. And they don't have what they need to get by. And they're not asking for much, just what they need to do their jobs and get by. And you're all they need. I remember being a soldier in Iraq and not having enough body armor, not having enough armored vehicles, not having enough water. I know what it's like to be at war and not have the basic protections you need to survive and be effective. And I know what it's like to feel like your country, or at least your government, is hanging you out to dry. Or to die. I also know what it's like to get reinforcements from people back on the home front. To get packages of batteries and other things that we need. History is repeating itself in America again. Our government, and specifically our president, has sent our frontline heroes into war without proper equipment, again. Just like they did when I went to war in Iraq. And just like firefighters like Rob Sarah faced on 9-11, that's what Dr. Paul Hazer and his brave colleagues are facing right now in New York and in cities nationwide. I love my country always and my government when it deserves it. That's what Mark Twain once wrote. And while our government and our president don't deserve your love, our heroes do. So do your part. Get them the beans and the bullets for the fight. And in this case, the PPE they need. The masks, the face shields, the gowns, the tools they need to be successful and to just survive. Healthcare workers are frontline fighters against COVID-19, but they face critical shortages of PPE, personal protective equipment. PPE enhances their safety so they can keep caring for our loved ones. Get Us PPE is a grassroots movement founded by physicians and medical researchers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. The team has grown to include engineers, scientists, programmers, and just concerned citizens who are working around the clock to get them and their colleagues the equipment they need. So go to GetUsPPE.org and you can help. When you go there, you can do three things. One, you can request PPE. You'll be added to their list of facilities and will be visible for the entire Get Us PPE donor network. Two, you can give PPE. Supplies save lives. Find your nearest donation site on the website, and you can check drop off instructions before donating at over 2,000 sites nationwide. You can check the map on the website. Even if you only have a small amount of masks, you can do a direct donation to a healthcare worker. You can mail them directly to an individual healthcare worker by checking out their partner, Mask Match. Number three, you can actually make PPE. You can join the Maker Force cool name, right? You can add yourself to a list of people who are ready to help with mask-making efforts and other maker-made PPE to give medical care facilities the supplies they need. And they're looking for folks with all kinds of skills, sewing, cutting, laser cutting, 3D printers, people who want to work at drop-off points, drivers, local organizers. They need CNC routing, which is apparently computer numerical control, milling, die stamping, injection molding, welding, water jets. If you have any of those skills, you can be of help. If you go to getusppe.org, our grandparents made bombs and ships to support the war against the Nazis. We need to make masks to support the war against the coronavirus, and everyone can be a Rosie the Riveter, be a Mike or Mary the mask maker. Listen to Rob, Sarah, listen to Dr. Paul Hazer. Go to getusppe.org or use the hashtag #GetUsPPE. Be a helper, support the war effort, do your part, and help the doctors like Paul. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag Angry Americans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active.
9: All
0: right. Thank you to all of you out there for the continued support and for sending me the emotional and digital and creative PPE to keep this pod running and all the things that we do surviving and thriving. Big thanks to a few folks that helped make this episode happen. First off, Dr. Paul Hazer, especially, and his amazing wife, Karen, and his kids, especially Gabby. You're an amazing family. You're true heroes. And we are so, so grateful for the time you gave us and everything you're doing right now and everything you will do. Big thanks to Rob Sarah, who's in his basement, and the entire Sarah family for checking in, giving us an update, and for everything he's doing. Wish you the best down there in the Dungeon Man. Big thanks to the Righteous Media team, especially Mighty Mercy Rich, who is always what the doctor ordered. Thanks to creative Chris Rosenthal, who is our graphical surgeon. Check out all the amazing video he does on our Instagram page, on our YouTube page, and at angryamericans.us. Big thanks to Bill Schultz, the master pharmacist, alchemist, scientist. He finds the cure for all my mistakes and all my flubs in every single episode. He's a master. Thank you, Dr. Bill. And big thanks to Bravo Sierra. Hooray, Bravo Sierra now powers this episode. It makes all of this great content possible. So go to bravosierra.com backslash americans. If you go there right now, you can get a free sample kit. And if you use the code angry, you'll get 15% off on any orders. In times like these, especially, you need to stay fresh and you need to stay clean. And Bravo Sierra does it and gives back to the military and smells great, looks great, is great. Go to bravosierra.com. My big thanks to Bravo Sierra and the entire team there for all this Support. And thanks to all of you that tuned in to Righteous Late Night and to the guests that have popped in. We've been going live on my Instagram page. It's been a lot of fun. It's been great community and a lot of inspiration. We've had some very cool guests. Rob Sarah checked in. Charlie the Spaniard Brenneman, the UFC fighter, checked in. Jason Kander, who ran for mayor in Kansas City and is an all-around aspiring dude. Isaiah James, who's running for Congress in Brooklyn. Pyle Mahajan checked in from India, where she runs a national call center helping people facing the coronavirus. And my friend, Rob Acosta, who's a wounded warrior and inspiring dude, checked in from Oregon. Really cool folks have been joining us with more coming. So check us out on my Instagram page and most weekday nights around 1030 Eastern or so. And it's time for Thank a Listener. So every week, I want to thank a few angry Americans just for listening. And I want to hear from you. And we do have a hotline. So if you're sitting around and you're watching Netflix or you're just staring out the window, give me a call. 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a call. Tell us what's going on in your area. Tell us what's got you angry. And we will make you famous. And you can call, you can tweet, you can post on our social, and we will make you famous.
1: I'll make you famous.
0: It only takes a minute. You can be a part of the show and you can help us spread the word and you can give us some insight into how the coronavirus is impacting your community, your family, your world. So go ahead and do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. All right, and a couple quick thank yous to angry Americans that have been listening around the country and around the world. First off, I want to thank Jeff Bajanis, B-J-A-N-E-S. He's up in Canada. Jerry Builder is his Twitter account, and he says, just a little contractor trying to make it in a big contractor's world. He said he loves the podcast, but he's listening as an unimportant Canadian, though. Jeff, you are not unimportant at all, especially right now. Big love to our friends up north in Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Big thanks to Willem Hartung. Willem Hartung, who tweets at Hartung Willem. He's from Minnesota. He is the dad of three little ladies. He's a movie buff. He's a comedy lover and a French bulldog owner. Uh, And he tweeted from the episode with Flo Groberg, a quote that Flo had when he said, I never fought against an enemy that was more powerful than my own brain. He said, that's when I got knocked on my ass. This is from a Medal of Honor recipient who has seen some of the worst war has to offer. That quote should be a sign hanging in everyone's kitchen. You're right, Willem. I like that, definitely. But thanks for checking out the episode with Flo Groberg, getting a lot of great comments on that. If you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. Uh, it's right after this episode. And if you haven't seen the video, go to angryamericans.us. You can see the video of me and Flo. I'm in my uh, apartment in New York City. He is in his basement in Seattle. It's a coast-to-coast thing. But check it out, and thanks to Willem for tuning in. Thanks also to Jay, who tweets at J57232155. He only has two followers, me and someone called Mother Show. But he wrote a tweet that I wanted to mention. I want to thank him for his support. He tweeted, keep up the good work. I love your podcast. I am retired. And every week, look forward to your podcast. God bless you and your family. You're fighting for all of us. Well, thank you, Jay. I wish you and your family the best. We're all in this fight together. And I'm glad you could tune in. I was glad I could be your very first follower. Appreciate the support, man. But thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Willem. Thank you, Jay. Also, a couple quick shout-outs. Thank you to Daphne Bradshaw in Maryland. Thanks to Cat Ward in Santa Barbara, California. Thanks to Grace Luteric in Buffalo. Uh, thanks to Eighty Second Thirteen Fox in California Nine One Six. Thanks to Navy Vet Thirty One, also in California. Thanks to Angry Black Woman, who is, I think, in Germany. And thank you to all of you. Please keep the feedback coming. You hear the baby; he's excited too. Dude, Please keep the feedback coming. Use the hashtag Angry Americans and sound off. I am grateful to all of you. And as always, thank you to my wife and my amazing two boys. Ryder started online school this week, which is kind of strange. Uh, I will admit we spent four years trying to minimize his screen time, and now we have to accelerate it, and it's a difficult situation. But he's doing great. One thing he had to do in his class was make a planet. He had to invent a planet, and he invented Planet Polka Dot, It was wonderful. It was yellow and it had blue polka dots. And he and my wife and the baby, they've been great throughout all this. It's not easy in New York City, but we've been trying to win the day. And every morning, we do something that's become a daily tradition. We do a number of the day. Today, it's 100. We did a letter of the day. Today, it's Q. We do a dinosaur of the day. It was a raptor. Vehicle of the day, jet airplane. Word of the day, bounce. And every day I pick a musician of the day. And today it was Lenny Kravitz. So we do that every morning just to try to create a little bit of unity and a little bit of happiness and a little bit of perspective and a little bit of learning. Uh, It's not easy in New York City right now. And especially for kids, it's confusing. Sirens go by their bedroom nonstop every night. I had to teach Ryder how to wear a mask and he played baseball today. Me, my wife, with a mask on, it was weird. And my wife, she's been incredible. She owns her own business, um, but her brother lost his job. One of our best friends lost his job and she's running a business and trying to keep the home locked down with me and working with the kids and it's just hard, but it's inspiring and they're amazing. And we know a lot of folks have it tougher than we do but my family, I just want them to know if they listen to this many years later that they're truly heroes in their own ways and we keep looking forward. We celebrate every day and we hope that one day we can get together hopefully for Ryder's fifth birthday in August. If not, we will find a way to celebrate it later but my wife also got me tickets to a Kenny Chesney show in August and maybe that'll happen. If not, it will happen one day and I'm thankful for the days we have and the breaths that we take. Just like I'm thankful to all of you, dear listeners, for tuning in. Please keep listening to the doctor's orders. Please stay united. Please keep looking out for each other. Please keep pushing through the storm. And please keep bringing the calm, bringing positive attitudes to each other, to me, and to this country. And please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, leave a quick review. Subscribe now and have it hot and fresh and waiting for you every Thursday, maybe more often. I've been thinking about doing some quick hit shows, some updates from the front, some wartime dispatches. And next week, I may do one with our friend Chris Fussell. I want to have him break down the day's news or the week's news or the situation in the world. So look out for that. We may be coming to you soon with some shorter bites. And check out Righteous Late Night on my Instagram. And check out Rider in River's room once in a while there, too. And definitely keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And go to angryamericans.us. You can sign up for our newsletter. And when events are eventually allowed in America again, we will have an anniversary party because this is our one-year anniversary of Angry Americans. So thank you for getting us this far. Thank you for making it possible. And thank you in advance for the celebration to come. And you'll all be invited. And we'll adapt, improvise, and overcome until then. So stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we will keep this movement growing week by week. I'm grateful you give us a bit of time every week. And remember, it's okay to be angry, especially now. And no, especially now, you're not alone. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention.
7: Get along down the road. We got a
0: long, long way to go. General Martin Dempsey had a great tweet this week from Napoleon, who said, The battlefield is a scene of constant chaos. The winner will be the one who controls that chaos both his own and the enemies and Dempsey wrote in these times control what you can control contribute to order deny the enemy's advantages stay strong that's the message from general Martin Dempsey and I think it's a good one together we will get through this we can all be heroes we can take care of our heroes and we can ensure a better future for everyone but we will get through this and there'll be a day when our kids can play outside again When they can hug their grandparents again, when we can all go to a concert again, we can all be outside together again. It'll feel far away at times, but we will get there. And until then, we can do all that we can to make this world a bit of a better place every day. And as best we can, we can all get along. I'm your host, Paul Reichhoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant America and stay frosty
7: we all get along.